Hello, and welcome to another episode of Humans of Magic. This week, we've got a really special one, folks. We've got Zvi Malshowitz. Zvi is a legendary magic player and deck builder. He's a Hall of Famer. He is known as one of the most creative, talented, unique deck builders ever. And his process, his writing, his work has influenced so many generations of magic players. We're definitely going to talk about that today in this episode, in this conversation. But we're also going to talk about Zvi and what he's doing right now, which is a full-time writer. He's got a substack called Don't Worry About the Vase. He writes constantly about AI, existential threat of AI, and just technology in general. Zvi is a fascinating man. He's got a lot to say. So in this episode, we're going to have stories. We're going to have observations. Quite honestly, it was just a pleasure being in the room with him or in a virtual room with him and just kind of hear him talk about Magic the Gathering, the world, AI, game design, all kinds of great topics. I really enjoyed recording it and I hope you enjoy listening to it. A few quick words before we start about the Humans of Magic Patreon. Patreon is the best way to support what I do. This is something that I do part-time. I have some grander plans for the show in 2024. I would like to upgrade my gear. I would like to do more in-person interviews. I like to do all kinds of stuff, maybe even travel and record at Magic Cons. Who knows? In order to make these goals come true, I would appreciate any support that you can send my way. If you want to learn more about the Humans of Magic Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash humans of magic. All the things will be there. You'll get some perks. You'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. You'll get early access to the Humans of Magic episodes before they come out to the general public. But I think most importantly, Patreon is just the best way to support creators like myself who are doing it as a labor of love, doing it part-time, who want to expand my range into something bigger for the show next year, 2024. So any kind of support you can provide is much appreciated. Thank you for listening. And now let's get to the episode with Zvi Malshowitz. Zvi Malshowitz, how are you doing, sir? I'm great. Life is good. Life is good. It's an life is good for me too. It's an honor to have you on Humans of Magic. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. You're a veteran of podcasts, so obviously this is probably more nerve-wracking for me than you right now. But <laughs> um yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear you're doing good. And uh what's what's new with you? Like what's uh what's been going on in your world? Like either I guess it's mostly not magic stuff now, but what's been going on yeah, in your world? Yeah, I mean I you know, up until uh, about April, you know, me and BDM were were working on a a tradable card game uh, on the you know on the on the Tezos blockchain called Emergence, based on his Emergence comic book universe. And unfortunately, you know, it turned out retention on that game was not so good, and it didn't work out. And uh, you know, I'm sad the servers had to shut down, so people can't just enjoy the current version for free indefinitely. Because I think it's a really fun game. But uh, since then, I've transitioned into fully being a writer. And so I write about artificial intelligence because uh, there's lots and lots of amazing developments every single week, right? Um, these models keep getting better. People find new uses for them. And also they pose potentially existential dangers uh, to the human mm -hmm. race. 
So yeah. it seems like a really important thing to be paying attention to. And I think I found a way to, to help people keep up with that and understand it in a way that uh, no one else is building that niche. So I'm very happy to be in a life position where I can do that full time. I can be supported to do that full time by people who think that I'm a, the right man for the job. Right. And, you know, it's it's grueling work. You know, it, it, it's constantly coming at you. There's always something else you have to, you have to think about and, and deal with and respond to and arguments to consider. But, you know, it, it's kind of like the next level playing game, playing a kind of game, playing a puzzle, you know, trying to solve puzzles, trying to figure out the right way to navigate situations and, and find paths to victory, except the stakes are rather higher, right? So, like, you look back fondly to, like, Oh yeah, we were just playing magic games and, and tournaments and, and trying to figure out the right deck. And like, those were good times, man. Good times. Those were innocent times. Yes, they it was totally just fun and games. Were. Yeah. 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 I mean, the field of AI is changing so rapidly. Like, I've got. Um, I'm not sure if you read this. Like, I read this a few years ago, right? And oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, Super Intelligence by uh, Bostrom. And I'm yeah, thinking that... about rereading it. And I was actually thinking the other day, like. How much of it is still relevant? I guess it is relevant, but there's been so much development in AI like over the past yeah. even six months, six to 12 months that I, oh, I don't yeah. know. No, it, 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 that's a foundational text, right? Of the entire theory of existential risk, right? It takes the ideas that he developed, that Yukowski developed, and, and it puts them in a book form and lays out the argument as Bostrom sees it for existential risk. And I would say we've learned a lot Right, things haven't gone in many ways technologically the way that Bostrom anticipated. Right, like large language models don't do the things that you know Bostrom thought they'd be good at, as well as some other things he thought they wouldn't be as good. At. And it's not just Bostrom; like nobody, pretty mm -hmm. much, like expected mm -hmm. it to work this way. Like who thought, oh, they're bad at math, but they're great at poetry. Right, like, mm -hmm. this is just not something that we expected. It just like. We understand it now, but like that's that's hindsight, right? That that's that's having seen it and having played with it for a while. And so one of the big debates is how do we adjust our expectations going forward based on what we've learned and, and observed, right? Because these are not the models we expected. And there's a camp that says, well, you know, you predicted this series of developments and this other thing happened that was different. Therefore, we shouldn't worry about the scenarios you're describing and everything's going to be okay. And my perspective on it is, well, we should definitely adjust our expectations as to what's going to happen in what order and what ways, but actually, you know, having to deal with large language models in many ways makes the problems we have to solve harder, not easier. And doesn't change the ultimate destination all that much. Right. Cause like, mm. even if you are better at different things first, and even if you work, your, your system works, on different principles underneath. The important thing is we have no idea how these large language models function and work, and we can't figure out how to direct them to do because it's reliably what we want them to do, even on a normal subhuman basic instruction by instruction level. And so when we scale them up and they become more more capable and more intelligent, you know, they're still going to exhibit all of these different tendencies in their own ways. There's still going to be convergence, I would expect, onto these things. And our current techniques for dealing with them are just going to completely break down, even on the level at which they work at all right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say, you know, you want to read your Rostrum, right? You want to read your Yurkowski, and you want to keep that in mind, 
but you don't want to also have you also don't want to have that as exclusively the the failure mode, right? Like Bostrom envisions the what we call the the foom, right? The the rapid expansion of intelligence and capability over a very short time span, likely by a single entity. And I think people are underestimating the chance that, that happens anyway, in one form or another, uh, at least de facto. But that is very far from the only way that humanity can lose this game, right? Like, yeah, you can just have them play a three-card combo and kill you, like, instantly, out of nowhere. Of cards you didn't even know were printed, right? Like, it just prints new cards out of thin air and just goes, bam, bam, oh, infinite mana, kill you. It's like, oh, that's annoying. Didn't like that. Or you could have really been dead on turn two without actually technically right, being or, dead. You're or, just, or, this is or annoying. Or just like plays three, three red cards and suddenly it adds up to 20 damage from various goblins and you're just like, I didn't see that coming. Oh, I guess mm -hmm. Lucky's really powerful. Like, you can do the equivalent of that. Or, you know, it could just be, oh, it just figured out a really well-tuned deck that's just slightly better than everything else and then it slowly takes over the metagame. Right. And now no one has any choice but to like, let this deck run, and like only the AI can play correctly, so everyone has to trust the AI on how to play. And now, well, the humans are kind of disempowered, and we don't like, we have to play our game anymore, and we're not having any fun, and they get all the prizes, and the world, you know, like... It's too late to ban the deck once once they've broken it. Right, yeah. and like, it's too late, because they own Hasbro. Mm -hmm. Right? And they don't want like... it banned. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to do? Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's it's you know, or at least like if, if Hasbro moved to ban it, then the game would lose popularity because like this is what everyone's following now, and blah blah blah. And you know, these are all like obviously like weird magic metaphors for what might happen because like we're on a magic podcast. But you know, there's a lot of things that have to go right if we're going to get through this. And if we do get through this, it's amazing. It's great. Like there's basically no middle. There's no real middle ground where like we invent these super intelligent computers that can solve like lots and lots of technical problems for us and like create wonders on demand and then it sort of turns out okay and everything's normal like that's not gonna happen right like mm -hmm. that only happens in this weird case where that's what we explicitly deliberately decide to do right like, and i think that's not completely crazy right this idea of well we know that life is good when humans have to struggle and compete and figure things out for themselves and do things for themselves. And like, you know, you chop wood, you carry water, you build your house, you cook your dinner. And like that brings meaning to your life. So we're going to intentionally have the AI like set up a world, you know, that's like kind of like a world that humans are known to get value out of. But like maybe without all the murder and the sudden death and the like weird torture and like bad stuff. But like, you know, ideally. But, you know, and then you... And we're going to safeguard against, like, artificial intelligence, but we're going to, you know, otherwise mainly do our thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think that's the way to bet by any means, right? I, I think that by default, either we get something amazingly great and humanity gets to, like, probably spread throughout, you know, the galaxy and the universe and the light cone. Mm -hmm. And, like, things of value are springing up, springing up everywhere and, like, life is pretty good. Or, you know, basically very little of value is left and probably not. Right, including many people. And like I am trying to slowly turn the dial as much as I can on like how likely it is that we get the good outcomes versus the bad outcomes. And I'm also using my platform to push for a variety of like just good policy outcomes. Like I want to repeal the Jones Act so that like 
America can ship things between ports again, just like every other country on the planet. And I'd like to make it so we can build houses so that people can have places to live that cost reasonable amounts of money. Right. And like, I want to reform NEPA so that we can, you know, actually build transmission lines and windmills and, you know, act and mass transit systems. And, you know, the government can actually get anything done at a reasonable price at a reasonable, at a reasonable pace and so on, because partly they're just good enough of themselves. And I think abundance is amazing, but also because, you know, if you're insane, if everything is going crazy, you're not going to suddenly act sane about this even more insane thing that's happening no. with AI, yeah. right? If you can't see a future where you can put food on the table and you can have a bunch of kids and live in a house and like raise a family and live the, and, and we call it the American dream, but it's just life, right? Like we, you can't envision a real life in the future, right? If all you can see is this like bleak world where like nothing works and you can't afford anything and climate change kills you, you're just not going to be enthused for let's make sure humanity doesn't die. Right, you're not going to do anything straight about it. So, I don't think we can let everything else just go, right? Unfortunately, and I, I wish we were in a world where I would say, well, you know, everything's basically handled, and like you just help with one thing, but we just don't. And so, I, I try to help out wherever I can. If you could ascribe a uh, percentage to humanity's chance of survival in <laughs> the next a hundred years, uh, or let's just let's just narrow it to like survival from AI or AGI, like what would you put the percentage at right now? Ah, based yes, on the what famous you know? P doom question, except you're, you're asking for P hope, which is always like, yeah, I'm trying to nice. be positive here. So <laughs> right, right. <laughs> just so, the framing so, the question, you know? Yeah. No, I, I love it. Right. Like I think it, it's, I also love that that flips the, that flips the presumption. Right. So like if you say 0% on P doom, right. It's absurd if you think about it, what it means to think that like creating smarter than human computers, intelligences that might like pursue, you know, whatever's instructed of them. Like if you say it has no risk, that just doesn't make any sense, right? Like you don't need to know any technical questions. You don't need to worry about any specific scenarios. It's like, obviously, you know, you have smarter, more powerful things running around as part of the dynamic that might not end well, like such a basic, simple thing. And like, we can talk price all you like and scenarios all you like. But when you say it the other way, it's like, what's the chance of survival? You say 100%. It's like, now nah, it sounds even even weird. So I mm -hmm. like that a lot. Um, and also I like to think, well, you know, there's a chance we'll, you know, like we've crossed the streams. There is some chance we will survive. I love this plan. I've entered this plan. Let's go with this plan, right? Like Ghostbusters. So I would say, you know, when, I, when I'm asked this question, I say chance of survival of 40%, roughly. Yeah, the, the flip of my P-Doom. And if you're asking it just in general, I'd have to lower it slightly because, like, it doesn't include the chance of doom from, yeah, just, like, some other source. Other, other reasons, sure. There's a few like, percent chance that we just kill ourselves without nu Nuclear war or I don't know what it is. Yeah. Pandemic, it, generally bioengineered pandemic plagues are, are, are pretty traditional. Um, Out-of-control nanotechnology is possible. You know, there's a few others. You know, there's a very, very tiny amount for, like, asteroids or, you know, anthropic climate change just causing some sort of weird interactive mm -hmm. spiral we're not thinking of and returning to Venus or, you know, things could happen. You don't know. But, you know, it's almost all AI, by percentage, right? Like in terms of the actual, we get wiped out, it's almost all AI and uh, some form of pandemic, uh, mm. some form of bio, bio plague or probably engineered bioweapon. Mm -hmm. Just because like in a nuclear war, like there'd be some people in New Zealand who were okay or something. Mm. And like, it wouldn't be, you know, I don't, 
want 97% of people to die, but, you know, as long as some people are alive, it's a different thing. So for the question, like, that's not actually due. It's an important Right. Change, humanity right? will survive, yeah. yes. And well, technically humanity will survive. Will, like, yeah. We don't know if we'll, civilization will endure and we'll be able to come back, but we know that something mm. will at least have a chance. Something we'll will be, rebuild. We'll be, yeah. we'll be able to fight. And, like, we'll see how we do it. So you're putting P-Hope at 40%. That's the upper bound. That's not an upper bound. I mean, so so to be clear, like, I, I like, um, so John like. By the way, I, ha I don't uh, have a great math background. So I might be just, I might just be throwing terms yeah. around that are not, it, it, not it, it, accurate. It's less, per I don't want anyone to think it's that precise, right? So like, like, John Likey, who runs the super alignment team at this point at uh, OpenAI, right, who has the lead in the AI race, he says 10 to 90%, right? For both wow. Hope and Doom. Okay. But right? he has a broad range because he recognizes that your strategy, right, the way you play your cards just changes so little. If it's 40% chance versus 70% chance versus 20% chance, right? Like if, and, and all of us players know how this works, right? If, if you're almost always going to lose this game, you can start saying things, well, like, I, I have to assume that I've land on top. Because if I out of the land on top, I'm just so mad and screwed that like, there's no way I'm ever winning this game. And so you act as if it is a land. Whereas if you're not that far behind, you want to plan for the possibility that you actually get unlucky again, right? And similarly, if you're way, way ahead, right? You want to say, okay, what's the worst case scenario? What if, let's assume that he does draw what he needs and that I don't, can I win anyway, right? Can I just cover all of my bases? And one of the most, imp one of the important things is to understand how, how and how much to adjust your strategy for when you're winning and losing. And so the basic observation is, you know, in this type of game, if you are at least 10% to win, but not 90-something percent to win or lose, then you mostly want to adapt very, very similar strategies. Of, okay, guys, we need to slow down, get our bearings, you know, take the proper precautions, fund the research, lay the groundwork for the regulations that would be necessary to make sure that nobody goes off and does this in an unsafe, unreasonable manner way too fast, and that we don't have to feel like we're capitalistically forced to race against each other and market pressures and by the fear that someone else will do it first. And all of this gives us a fighting chance, right? And then we figure it out. And, it, you know, the chance of success doesn't impact what the physical problem looks like, what the technical problem looks like that we have to solve or the social problems we also have to solve, right? In order to navigate our way through this. And so, you know, I don't want it to be a distraction. I don't want to like feel like, okay, it was 60% yesterday and now it's 57. And then like a week ago it was 63. And then a month before that it was 52. Like, it's not, you don't want to calculate like the ratios every day. It's not useful, right? You just ask sure. yourself, you know, is it, is it we're so in so much trouble that we're desperados and we have to try stuff that might actually make things way worse, right? Like, like potentially poison the opportunity for someone else to make the case. Cause like you went first and they, everyone now thinks it's stupid or something. Mm. right or even take drastic measures or or take risks that you could actually derail important things along the way or are you so safe right are things so positive that you potentially just want to push forward and actually encourage the thing to be built as fast as possible and like not be willing to pay substantial prices to make it safer potentially and I'm like pretty clearly I think we're not in any either of the extreme worlds at this point right I think there's definitely things that could happen that go well, things that could go poorly. And I'm building in like a bunch of model uncertainty where maybe I'm misunderstanding the questions, but it's possibilities where it turns out these problems like 
building the AI is really hard, so it takes a while, so we have more time to figure it out. Maybe there are techniques that will just sort of happen to pop up and like just work that I'm not thinking of because I haven't imagined them. You know, maybe we'll be able to bootstrap in ways that I think are unlikely, but you know, I can't rule them out. Like there's a lot of there's just so much uncertainty at every level and it brings in everything about the world. So it's all incredibly complicated and even thinking about it all day, right? I still remain deeply uncertain and confused. And I'm surrounded by people who think they are less uncertain, who think mm -hmm. they are much less confused than I am. Mm -hmm. Right. You have much more of a I know I think I know how this is gonna go. And they make like 70 different arguments about why it's obviously going to go this way or that way or this other way. Yeah. And there's 70 arguments supporting, supporting like 50 different potential ways things are going to go. And with, you know, 10 major categories or, you know, subsections or whatever. And the vast majority of these arguments are just, you know, either not even wrong or deeply, deeply stupid. Like, I don't <laughs> want to pretend otherwise. Right? Okay. There's people who just haven't thought things through, who are wish-casting, uh -huh. talking their book, you know, just uh, like a weird metaphor they've latched onto that they don't understand why mm -hmm. it doesn't apply, you know, some fundamental strong misunderstanding or whatever. But you still have to answer those. And then there's a lot of different or, you know, orthogonal good arguments and objections as well, right? I don't mean to say that, like, I'm confident that I'm right or there are no good objections. It's just that we haven't sorted through what the bad ones are. And anybody who is trying to have, you know, any political discussion, or any economic discussion with like a broad range of people understands the same problem, right? Like there's like real interesting disagreements about how we should orient our society and how we should make key decisions about distributions of resources and what rules we should or shouldn't have and what decisions we should or shouldn't make and what things we should or shouldn't allow. And most people on all sides of all of these discussions are saying deeply crazy, stupid things all the mm. time, right? It's just mm. how life will always be. And sometimes there's a right answer and a wrong answer, and it's pretty clear. And sometimes it's a disagreement of values and sometimes it's a disagreement of facts, right? Or models of how, you know, what would actually work in the situation and what wouldn't and like you're trying to predict. So in this case, like, it's like a synthesis of all of that everywhere all at once, right? And then you take it out of distribution to a place where you've got a future with entities in it that are smarter than you, who can imagine things and then build them that you can't even imagine, right? They're going to probably find like physical properties of the universe and psychological properties of humans and other such things that we have not figured out. And we're going to learn how things work that nobody's ever tried before. And you have to try and model that. And that's just ridiculously incredibly hard. And then you have to get to steer these entities into doing things that you want them to to figure out how to steer them to doing what you want to do, but then coordinate the humans to get them to do the things that would actually be good for the humans, and then get a very unnatural final result, right? Which is that, like, there are these much, much more capable, more efficient, more competitive entities that you've created, and yet somehow us dumb humans are still in charge and getting mm -hmm. the things that we care about and we yep. want and we value. Like, that's not a, a normal. A lot of things have to go a certain way, basically. It's like, it's yeah. like this multiplied by this, and... Maybe the question is not even about human annihilation, but more about like what is the what are the unintended consequences and what what actually happens is that's just as yeah, important, I, I, right? I, very true, and I, I worry about that the talk of human annihilation is necessary to get the message across, but then it it causes people to think, oh, 
this is only about like annihilation. It's not about like any of the other things that could go horribly, horribly wrong. And the way to think about that is like if there are super intelligent entities running around and things go horribly off the rails in one of various ways, like they don't just stay somewhat off the rails in almost all of these scenarios. They just keep going farther and farther off the yep. rails. Mm -hmm. And we do end up not existing reasonably fast. Right? If you look like, you know, do you have any great grandchildren in that in that world? And the answer is almost always, no, you do not. Right? Like humanity ceases to exist. And probably very fast, but like even if not very fast, then slowly. And yeah, you know, my concern is a good future, not like me personally not being blown to bits before my natural time or anything. Like that doesn't that that's not my concern. Right, like that's yeah. I'd much rather have a better chance of a good long-term future than like sell it out to, like have an incremental like everyone gets to retire instead of the machines killing us or something like mm -hmm. or venting the app or not killing us directly but like venting the atmosphere and boiling the ocean so they can have they can compute faster or something like you know something much more. Is there realistic. a possibility that uh, the machines? become stronger and stronger, basically like gods, right? And the machines are running the world, but it could actually end up being a better world than if humans continue to run the world. Is that a possibility? It's possible, right? And and that's what a lot of people are hoping for. But you have to get that right on the first try in very complex, non-obvious ways. Because like if there are multiple machines, Right, there are all these machines out there running the world. Are they competing with each other for resources? Or is there some form of selection going on where like the ones that successfully compete for resources end up with more resources, make more copies and instantiations of themselves, you know, construct other machines to help do their bidding, whatever they've been instructed to try and do? Like, is this equilibrium stable? You know, do they understand what humans would value? Uh, are we capable of extracting value from and finding meaning in a world in which we don't run things and we don't do the things that matter mm -hmm. right is another question like even if everything is set up in a well-intentioned in some sense mm -hmm. fashion and we have control over them it's still like a little bit touch and go I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take my chances on that kind of world if we get that far given, it sounds given kind of grim but i have my cat next to me like what if i become the cat right basically i mean there's there's a there's some subservience right. and life, like you know, you know? Right. And so, like, we've gotten the situation where, like, this kind of distorted version of cats and dogs, right, like, have some form of synthesis where, like, we get value from them. And so we provide value to them. And because of the way our brains work, we have these kind of forms of empathy and ways of modeling things that cause us to want them to do well. And therefore, like, dogs and cats get utility from their perspective in this world reasonably well. But, you know, I would argue that a lot of that is our inability to master the physical world on a deeper level, the, bio the biology and the physics and the chemistry, such that we can create something that serves the role of a dog or cat in a way that's better for us without actually being a historically evolved, like, path dependent dog or cat mm -hmm. like dogs especially like you know i mean cats are not a perfect product right like it's not just that people are allergic to them and that they <laughs> die quickly it's things like they hate you 
and would eat your corpse, right? Like, and and even cat lovers. Oh my know gosh, this. really? What I'm a they, first time cat owner. I never thought about that. Oh, I mean, don't die and it won't happen. You're fine. They're not gonna like attack you in your sleep. But it's and, and like lots of people get lots of value out of cats. It's just a matter of you know, cats want what they want. They are not very well aligned to what humans care about. Mm-hmm. We've just managed to make it work. But like, certainly, if like you could like redesign a cat for first principles with whatever behaviors you wanted, you wouldn't mm-hmm. design this exact. <laughs> kind of cat and like in the modifications you make to the cat right you would probably end up like changing the cat experience in ways that like potentially like you know old cats would not look at the new cats and say like i think this new world worked out really well for cats (laughs) right like yeah yeah, like you made a pro dog like, argument, and you also yeah, that that makes sense. But that like, think sense. about like, like think about a wolf, right? A, a wild wolf looking at a dog that evolved from a wolf, right? Like by domestication, and thinking like, does that affect the good life to you? It's like, well, <laughs> the worst, but it's kind of like not so great. And it's then a like, life. yeah. But then they toss the dog out, and they create a new, right? AI powered synthetic dog, like in the future, because the humans are like, well, it'll. It'll always love me, and it won't get sick, mm-hmm. and it won't poop on the ground, and I won't have to take it for walks if I don't want to, and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, and it'll be there for me, and it'll sense my emotions better, and it'll know when I need to hug, you know, it'll know what I need. And Hopefully it'll, like, live longer, so there's less sadness on and, the like, owner's part. And, the human will be better off, right, in some ways, and, and have mm-hmm. a better experience, or at least they'll choose that dog over the old physical dog. You know, will this new dog, like, be something that old dogs would value? Right? Like... I mean, that's not obvious at all. I think basically no. And chances are it'll actually look completely nothing like a dog. Right? Mm-hmm. In the end. It'll just be like, oh, dogs can be decomposed. And like what's called goal factory. Like what are the things that dogs do for a human that make the human's life better? Would you do those with a dog? Or would you do those with some other set of, you know, some combination of, you know, chemicals you can imbibe and you know, entities you can interact with, like some, and like just sets of human relationships and exercises you can go on and, you know, philosophies you can adapt and who knows what else. My guess is that like the platonic ideal of human experience doesn't involve anything that looks that much like a dog or a cat, right? It's just given our current affordances, a lot of people get a lot of value out of a dog or a cat, mm-hmm. right? But that's like very path dependent and very coincidental. And that's not going to be what it's like in 2300 in almost any <laughs> scenario right yeah they're just not yeah. gonna have dogs that look like our dogs unless something very strange so i want to ask i mean once machines or ai get to a very um get to a certain point are we just gonna have the perfect perfectly designed game this is kind of like moving it a little bit back to to gaming but yeah yeah but uh, do you do you think that's just going to happen very soon? Like just just because you talked about you know you have experience being a a designer, a game designer, and obviously you've been in touch with many kinds of games. Like, is that just going to become a inevitability of sorts? I think a lot of what makes games great is we sort of agree. You know, we chose this set of arbitrary premises that are not perfect that are not perfectly balanced. Like, look at Alpha, right? Like, the first release of Magic, right? 
It had Black Lotus. It had Ancestral Recall. It had these completely absurd cards in it that Richard Garfield knew 100% were completely absurd because it's impossible not to know. And he chose to release it that way anyway because he felt like the excitement and the dynamics of these pieces not being in balance was the right play. And he didn't have like the right things in mind because he didn't understand that the game was going to be such a big hit. But I think he was right that like you want to start out with this series of conventions and like magic is built up as conventions over decades. And a lot of what makes magic great is that it is not perfect. Right. I mean, if you go into one of these like very curated formats, that has been around forever. It's been balanced to within an inch of its life. You can play interesting games of magic and you can do any number of different strategies, maybe. But that's not what's interesting to me, right? What's interesting to me is something new, something to be explored, right? And there's a reason why, to me, like a lot of the games that I keep coming back to now in my days of retirement, when I'm just playing amongst myself and I have limited time, are roguelikes, right? Especially rogue deck builders. To me, like this is the instantiation of magic for like a single player on his own time without having to constantly have this stream of cards that he has to process coming at him like it's like it works for me so like slay the spire to me is like one of the best games of all time and it got tuned like quite a lot in some ways but i almost don't want it to be perfect i want it to have these flaws to explore and I often really like the idea that, like, this game is imperfect and I'm going to play it. And as I play it, they're going to patch it because of what, what they see as, like, whatever was most powerful, they're going to slightly fix it. But I'd be sad if I came in after all the patches, after they'd done all the fixes, right? You, like, I remember playing Europa Universalis 4, and I'd be playing these absurd games where I'd find these exploits, I'd find these holes in the system, and I'd have a lot of fun with them. And they'd say, okay, you can't just, you know, get England extracted from the United Kingdom and then have a personal union with England, and then annex England a hundred years later as France. Like you, know, you got to stop. This is stupid. And like, but I really enjoyed doing it once. Right. That that was a blast. Like I got to figure this out. And simultaneously, there are these games that have endured for thousands of years or hundreds of years, because like we've all agreed that this simple set of rules has a lot of emergent nice properties, and it has a tradition. And we're going to just keep building on that, even if it's, like, not quite what you would quite want to do, necessarily. Like, think about chess or Go, right, or Backgammon. And now we have, like, Texas Hold'em, right? Like, it's an incredibly elegant game with this, like, very simple deck of 52 cards. Each player gets two, and then you put five in the middle, and then the chips are really arbitrary. And this create this really interesting, complex set of probabilities and dynamics mm-hmm. that, like, even now that we've solved the game to a large extent with the uh, computers... Like, this still results in this really, really interesting set of problems. And, you know, chess is the same way, Go is the same way. Like, you, you know, the AI wouldn't really necessarily change chess or Go, right? It's just be say, like, these are already not exactly the way we would make the game if we were making it from scratch, but they are already, because of their traditions, effectively perfect games. And yeah, in 100,000 years, we're spreading throughout the galaxy, whatever the AI is probably going to figure out exactly the right evolutions of, you know, the right simple, elegant things that make the, that humans have the most fun playing against themselves on a deep level. 
And they're also going to be like, okay, here's the type of game I want to play. Can you create this for me? And I'll just spontaneously create it for you, right? I want to play a, you know, for what my, my, my dream game to make at some point mm-hmm. uh, that is in the TCG is, you know, take Master of Orion 3's design document with the idea of Imperial focus points in a 4X game, apply it to civilization and have civilizational, have the technology on the technology tree radically change the interface and how you give orders and how things are carried out such that you really feel technology and logistics and coordination advancing over time. And so that the end game doesn't feel like you're just micromanaging a lot of stuff because now you're playing a completely different interface the way you would in Spore. And like that game is like infinitely hard to make well as a human, right? But I think if we have a super intelligent AI, I can just type that into a computer and it will make me a version of that. And I can tell it feedback and then it can iterate and then we can create something cool and it can create an AI that like presents an interesting challenge and experience to me without it having to just like output endless units. Like if you try to play Civilization Six or Civilization Five or whatever, like there's basically, they weren't able to or didn't care to make an AI that could compete in a fair way. So if you're any good at the game, the AI just competes in a completely unfair way. And that's not really very fun in many ways, right? Because you have this thing of like, okay, it's just going to multiply so damn fast that I'm forced to, for example, gamble on it not attacking me, right? Like this is the, this is what ultimately killed Civilization V for me, was that when I played it on the level where it was a challenge, right? I basically was just like, can I establish enough stop, enough area that I can race the AI with my superior technique? And then have the AI not decide to just descend a hundred units on me when I have six. Because the AI just decides to go up to Claire War and then march a real army at you as opposed to like a narrow window where you can arch them to death. Then like if you were to sacrifice enough effort to build enough units to possibly fight that back, then some third civilization is just going to get to space before you do. Because mm-hmm. you're just not moving fast enough. So you always lose in that case. So you just you're forced to gamble until the game's not interesting. But these are problems that can be solved, right, in time. But, like, I keep coming back to these games that have a lot of random elements that I understand and are fixed randomness, right, that are deliberate, like, built on top of something solid, and then I, like, I'm presented these puzzles, and sometimes it's trivial, and sometimes it's impossible. And you're trying to maximize your chances. And, yeah, I think you can tune that a lot. But also, I think that humans will always want to play games in some sense that, you know, have a natural source and evolution. Their arbitrariness is part of the appeal. You wouldn't want their edges moved out, whether or not a human is the original reason for that. Right? I, I enjoy watching speedruns, right? People still today will run Super Mario Brothers and try to shave that last tenth of a second off of their time. And it's not because someone designed Super Mario Brothers to be a really, really good speedrunning game. It's because the history of Super Mario Brothers is so enriched that like we've chosen this as like the target we're gonna like care about quite a lot yeah we care about it because we care right i think that's wonderful i think it's amazing well there's a couple things you said there um i'm just gonna unpack a little bit like one thing is that the idea of finding pleasure in a game and exploiting it before it becomes fully formed or fixed or patched like you said with alpha and uh early versions of 4x or other strategy games 
that's actually really interesting. I never even thought about that. Like just, just the fact that, um, a certain type of gamer such as yourself may delight in breaking a game or like extracting something from it and understanding that maybe that extraction is like temporal or temporary because later on, or because you don't actually want to, uh, only start playing the game once it's been like fully patched or once it's been, once those holes are, um, I don't know, maybe the magic analogy is like, uh, getting into a format once it's like, once all the tier decks are well known, like, like the, the, what's good and what's bad is kind of like available information and like, yeah. Right. The most. Aside from just not being able to talk to your opponent and have that social experience, yeah. which is that they have the social design, this incentive design of a financial, right? Where on day one, if you do not want to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars every release, when they're building all the new decks and trying them out for the first time and there's this Wild West feeling and constructed, what are you doing? You're drafting. Mm -hmm. Right? You're still drafting. You're playing lots of limited because you need to be good at limited, because limited's fun, you're still exploring limited, but every time you draft, you know, you get your, you get so much more value back than you put into it towards building your collection so that you can, in fact, stay current without right. spending you lots, lots gems, of money. Right, you get the gems, you can wild cards, right. and yeah. And if you draft yeah. later instead, after you've done all that stuff, you will burn so many resources by doing that. Mm -hmm. Right, so instead, you're sitting there drafting. There's no reasonable way to keep up and get there first. You just either spend the money or you don't. Right? There's no mm -hmm. real middle ground. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're drafting also when draft is most fun. Because like once everybody knows how the draft format works and everybody is picking the same cards first and second, you know, and everybody has their guides. Like it's a lot less interesting than when you and everybody else don't know what's going on. That that, that first day draft experience. That, that freshness. Amazing. Yeah. 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 There's nothing like it, right? Like there's nothing like it. That's what I right? yeah, I want that thing of like me and seven friends sit down at a physical table and we pick up a set we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we read this boy over that afternoon and we just try to figure out what happened. Ideally old friends that like have been playing magic with me for 30 years. And we're just trying to figure out this new thing. And like, I think these cards are great. And you think these cards are terrible. And like, I can't believe that card went around. What are you people thinking? Mm -hmm. Right. And then we try things, completely different things and we see what was good. And then we, you know, ideally evolve that over, a series of drafts or experiments for several weeks. And then mm -hmm. we converge in the end on something more, more solidified and, and correct. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's value in that too, right? There's, there's lots of value. And I also love that thing with the pro tour. Everyone shows up having tested for weeks and months and everyone thinks they know exactly how their, this thing is supposed to go. And you find out who got it right and who got it wrong. And you compare your research. And I really loved it back in the day when those researchers were isolated, right? I feel like the everyone working together online and everyone more or less knowing what's up is a problem. It's all just a problem that like sort of, we spent the first, you know, 20, 30 years of magic going down a lot of the low hanging fruit of here are the simple things you can do with this set of mechanics, right? With magic's basic core design, here are the most basic, simple things done the first time and let's all figure it out together. And even the things that we still do, it's like, it's new to us. We haven't tried it before. We don't have the experience. And everyone was like bad at magic on a level that like current players wouldn't even understand, right? Everyone completely sucks. Like, 
you know, your goal as a top magic player was to suck less, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, suck somewhat less mm -hmm. in some sense, and occasionally be somewhat good, but it was rare. And so, you know, that was a great time. And what I wish a new player like my kids could experience is to go back to that, right? Not necessarily to alpha, but like to, you know, something in the relatively early years when the cards were simple, and then to be in a world where nobody knew what was going on. And they could like fumble and learn and experiment and figure things out for themselves the way that we did. And unfortunately, you can't go home again, right? Like it's not, it's not a thing you can do. The internet is not going to go back to its old state. The knowledge is not going to go away. Yeah. You know, and, and the, you can't just reprint all the things over again. But yeah, I do kind of think that like, there's a lot of fun in that kind of thing. And that's like. I look at pre-modern and it has a lot of that same, like, you get to go back and experience, like, these old things, but you don't get to figure it out in the same way. So that's why you're drawn to, to pre-modern, because you mentioned that you, you're you quite a fan of the format, right? So there's still, like, rogue deck building and things to figure out about It's it, amazing despite... how many years it's been around, right, with the same exact cards. Maybe they ban a card or two, like, you know, Mox yeah. Diamond has to go or whatever, and, you know, Land Tax, or I forget exactly even what they, what they did this last time, but... But yeah, it's this idea of there are so many different things that are attacking on so many different angles, right? These cards used to not only be simple, but to be orthogonal, to like be radically different from each other, right? Such that they don't obviously dominate each other and the interactions are really strange. And so, yeah, you can go build something unique and different and you can have a chance, right? Like Sam Block can just like create a new deck every year, maybe every few months. And it's legitimately new. And, like, maybe it's not, like, going to blow everyone out of the water, but it, it can compete, right? Like you can play some magic here, and you can see what happens and take advantage of the fact that nobody has any idea what's going on except you, which is one of the things I love, right? When you walk into a tournament, and your opponents have no idea what the hell you're thinking. Mm. You know, like, I build a deck, I show up, I don't remember that many details, I build this black-green deck, and I show up to the standard tournament, and I show up with, like, Collar of the Claw, like weird like you know sacrifice -y, like thing i built the night before no one's ever sure. anything like it it's like not a big tournament and there's like three other people who know what they're doing right at the tournament but it's like second like never withstand real scrutiny in its current form like it turned out not to have there was nothing there like it was a tier two strategy in this but like i knew what i was doing and no one had any idea and it was so fun right that kind of thing is so fun I had pro tours like that, right? You show up and nobody knows, nobody, nobody has any idea what's going on. Right. right? Like back in the day, you could was... actually break formats. You could actually do something that people genuinely did not expect. Like genuinely nobody figured that thing, same thing out, right? That's what it's Oh yeah, me. no, I mean like, like I won Tokyo, right? That was my one time I had a chance to, to win a pro tour. And so my first round, I'm playing the, the solution, right? And I'm up against a red-green deck. It's like everything is exactly how I throw it out, right? And so I draw the more normal-looking half of my deck, right, in some sense. But I also do it, you know, it's what it takes. So, I, I, so I'm so i sitting on, like, you know, Galena's Knight and Voice of All and another Galena's Knight or something, and I, like, cast the spells, and, like, I, I win the game. And so... He's playing against the Japanese player. And he turns to his friend after the round. And he's like, 
what can I do? What can I do? Pro red, pro red, pro red. Right? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, he hasn't seen the Crimson Acolytes. He hasn't seen the other he half. Has, he, he hasn't seen the crazy half, right? The, 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 the extension where I just take this way too far. This is not an accident that this happened. I did mm-hmm. not draw exactly the eight protection red creatures and, 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 and you got unlucky. Mm-hmm. Right? And this deck that you didn't think could possibly work. It has still books on the power. So it's when that deck has like both a plan A and a B, or I should say more like two well, plan A's. More than, like, I, the plan was to use Crimson Acolytes that everything has protection from red. And I happened to just draw protection from red creatures that have it naturally and not show him an Acolyte. So he thought he was just, you know, it was a coincidence. But like, I was like, yes, it's exactly what I had in mind. Your hand is full of burn spells. I'm fast enough you can't possibly burn me out. You have like three dead cards in your hand. And you lose. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how we do it. You're on a mold of four. Yep. Yep. You're mm-hmm. on a mold of four. Exactly. And then I'm walking out, and, you know, there's like, at this point, there's a big team. So there's like 11 of us who have the deck, right? So, like, it's going to be a, something people talk about. And I hear William Jensen, right? Like, one of the future amazing teammate, great guy. Like, now he's at Wizards, like, running standard and stuff. And he's like, you know what deck's really terrible? That stupid Scott Johns deck, he was one of my teammates who was in the future match area in red one, with four main deck Crimson Acolytes. What are these people thinking? <laughs> and I'm just walking around the room thinking... These people, yeah. You know, or, or something like that, right? Like, they've gone insane. Like, this is such a stupid deck. And I've walked around the room a little bit. And I know that, like, three quarters of my opponents are playing Rage. Right? Like, it's just... It's everywhere. I was com- we were completely right about the, the metagame. And we know that we're right. And like this deck comes out, and not only does nobody know what's going on, they just instinctively can't believe this could possibly work. And like I've had other versions of this that were more or less extreme, obviously, but like that was the, the one round where I'm just like, I, I walked in thinking I'm going to win this tournament. And then after round one, I'm just like, oh my God. Yes. You're really going to win are, this one. <laughs> we are going to own this run. You know, uh-huh. like maybe it won't be me, right? I think it will be because I think I'm the best player of the stack, but like, we're mm, going to own this run. Yeah. So yeah. confident. Never been that confident before or since. Like, it's, okay. You just felt so strong. Whereas other times, it's like, oh, I figured out this like one little tweak. And now, like, it's better. Other times, it's the opposite. It's like, you show up thinking, Everybody is going to be doing what I'm doing in some form, right? They're going to figure out what I figured out. And I'm going to play a bunch of beer matches or they're going to be ready for it. And then nobody else did. They missed something that you thought was obvious. And you missed something that they thought was obvious. And, and you know, you should have, you, you were wrong about that too, right? It's not one-sided. But, you know, and then you're like, I don't understand what happened. So like with, um, you know, the first, my first breakthrough, right? The, the top eight at New York, New Jersey with zero effect with the fluctuator. Mm-hmm. Like I knew, you know, not everyone's going to be playing fluctuator because like, it's not that easy to find. But then I found out that like the only other major team that had, that was playing fluctuator. So I finally play against them. I'm, I'm, we're curious to see what's going on. I heard some rumors they were playing Claws of Gicks. And they had a lot of islands, and it was weird. And like, I'm like, I did hundreds of test shuffles with this deck. You can't, 
this deck will break if you do that. It will be very inconsistent. It's not, it's not like the, the tune doesn't work, right? And then finally, I play a, a match in round two against Bob Marr, who's playing their version of the deck at like six and one. And, you know, I linger in Mirage, his academy, and I play my academy. And I see like he's playing a bunch of islands, even as Swamp in his deck. He's got Cause of Gex, and I see all the, all the things. And then we talk of it afterwards, right? And this is one of the amazing things that happened at old Pro Tours, where you have different versions of the same idea, or like one of you decided to play the deck and the other one had a version and didn't play it. And you talk about your process of how you got from point A to point B to point C, and why you made decisions you made, and you figure out where you diverged and what happened, right? And so what happened was, they didn't know about Lingering Mirage, right? They didn't occur to them they could use Lingering Mirage to get rid of the other guy's academy. And back then, a different legend rule, right? So if they played an academy, you couldn't play your academy. Just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can't keep an academy on the table, you can't win this deck. It's physically impossible. So they had to have enough blue sources in their deck so they could rescind double blue without their academies, the opponent's academy, because you, had to, you couldn't use your academy to generate the one-time mana to rescind. So you had to immediately afterwards play your academy because otherwise their academy would just be played back again. Right. right, just the so, presence you know, of a known piece or the non-presence right, right. of a piece, just like the, the evolution is just completely changed. Right, it changes right? everything that they didn't realize Lingering Mirage was an option, right? Because it has, there was a cycling card. And because of that, they need enough islands to, without an academy, rescind an academy. Yeah. Which means they have to play like these six islands, which means their deck doesn't flow properly, which means all these other things have to change. And suddenly, it's just night and day. And that right? seems so unlikely today, right? That a team or individual would miss something like that. Yeah, and even then, it was like stunning to me, right? Like it's like these are, you know, they built like they got a lot of the way there, and they built a really good deck. But it's like, how did you not? And this is why I love block constructed, right? You would just go through literally every legal card in the set one by one, because there weren't that many of them. There's like five hundred, right? Or every card that had certain specific attributes. And you ask, what can I do with this? What can I do with this? What can I do with this? Or you're like, okay, I have a problem here specifically. So like for for Tokyo, right? We had this specific problem. What do we do against the control deck that's not red? Right? Or isn't that red? Or is it a mix of spells? They can kill kill things with black cards and they can kill things, yeah, they can use blue spells and so on. Like we and how do we beat them? How do we how do we outcard them? How do we, how do we make this deck? And so we had you know we did what, what you know a certain type of search that like today we would call it that in public, but yeah you know, we we had an X search, and we wait literally I was just in a apprentice I would like go card by card and look at every card in the format, and then I found your reflection and I was like, huh, right I didn't build the main deck but I did build the sideboard, and I. And I saw your reflection. I was like, "Yes, I know this is a terrible card in principle, but if they never play a creature, I can just play a creature. I get another creature. They kill my creature. I attack with the the phantom. They kill the phantom. I play a new creature. I have two more. They lose. I stick this. They lose. <laughs> it's a free action. It costs three mana. I can just do it. I'm playing white. No one else is. Mm-hmm. And no one else. I think in that entire room, 
of 400 players ever had the thought, I might want to play a pure reflection, right? Until I brought it up to my team. Because, like, who would? But I did the search. And so similarly, like, with the Fluctuator deck, with Zero Effect, I was like, I'm going to look at every Seglin card and look for anything I can do with them at all. Because, like, these cards, there, there's, there's several slots here that are doing very little work other than being a Seglin card. Right? I'm going to play some lousy Seglin card here. That's also because I had the instinctive reaction from the beginning that I'm going to play way more cycling cards than their version was playing. Where they have Claws of Gix, I have Thran Turbine from day one. Right? So the idea was, I'll play a Turbine if I have to, if I don't have the Fluctuator yet, and I'll find the Fluctuator by cycling. And that's what it takes. Because that's the only way I ever win a game. But I can't mulligan a hand about Fluctuator because I need my full hand of seven. So I was always going to have a ton of cycling cards in my deck. So I went looking for cycling cards I could use. I found Lingering Mirage. Right? And I wanted to make sure that the deck flowed completely. So I had we, our version had two islands and no swamps. Right? I had a we added the main deck Yagmoth's Will. I added it I added to my version the night before, so my teammates didn't have it. In place of the second Palancron. But like I just cast it off a of polluted mire. And nothing else. I said, but okay, if I need to cast the Yagmoth's Will, I need to save a landfly. So I can play a polluted mire. At some point in the sequence, and then untap with a frenetic search or a clan of fairies. <laughs> because it's going to come into play tapped. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll figure out a way. It's not that hard. You know, like, it doesn't come up that often. This was previously doing, like, not that much work, this slot. But, you know, I need, I can't have to fight for the palancron. I have to be willing to let them kill the palancron. So it's fine. And so it's, like, all these subtle little things like that. And yeah, nowadays, like, it's all, like, known, and you play a million games on Arena, and everyone talks about everything. Well, I also want to go back to something like, you know, when you said that, and I know you're known as one of the, one of the best like block constructed players of all time in terms of building results. Like, why do you think that you were able to brute force like every single card and yet other players didn't? Like, it sounds to me like there's some heuristic or mindset that you had that they didn't. So can you explain that a little bit? Obviously, it's hard to answer this because you're, you're yeah, Z, so it's, it's like, you know... It's hard to know what other people aren't doing, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I did have teammates who didn't, like, who, who did some very good things that were very helpful, but didn't do this particular thing, right, the same way. Um, part of it is, like, you know, so Teller of Penn and Teller, right, has described magic, the other kind of magic, as just being willing to put an amount of effort into something that no sane person would ever put into it. Right, just like way, way more than anyone would think you would put into it. And that's why magic works, right? Like stage magic. Because it's like you just practice this a billion times. And you you know all the little tricks, you know exactly how people's eyes respond, you know exactly how people's instincts are. And so it just works. Right? Like but it didn't you just kept at it. It's just persistence. It's just diligence. And so there's some of that. I think a lot of it is just like I worked for a while with Mike Forrest, right? He was kind of like the opposite philosophy of building things to me. Flores goes in and he asks the question, what are my opponents going to do? What are the decks to beat? What are the strategies I have to overcome? And exactly what do AKA I have to do? AKA Metagaming 101, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Innovative, he starts, with, meta, right, he starts yeah. with Metagaming 101 and he was a big innovator in this. Yeah, too. Like, it's not just he was happy to go come lately. And he asked himself, how do I 
get myself exactly enough resources to win each of these interactions, right? And I have never been like that, right? Like, yes, I will choose a metagame deck. I will absolutely, you know, do something weird when the time comes. But I have always, always, always started with a very different question. What is power? What does something cool? Right? What can these cards do? What can I... What powerful interactions exist? How do I, like, just create raw power? I don't care if it wins against specific decks. I don't care if it's going to have a good record right away. Like, what... What is there potential for here? Where is potential? Right? And a lot of the decks that I have built that no one else built separately until after they saw it. Right? Or that like that maybe would never exist or would have taken years and years to find. Are because it isn't naturally doing the thing you want to be doing in that spot. It's just really good at doing something. And it's not necessarily very like the natural way to build it, the first thought things you do don't necessarily win, right? It starts out and it kind of sucks. It's not very powerful. Or alternatively, like you have to find a lot of different tricks before it gets any good, right? Like it, you, you have this one interaction. So like when I was starting out with, uh, in, in, for Fluctuator in the Urza Saga block, right? I had an array of lots and lots of different decks. Like I had a her, I had a um, hermetic study horseshoe crowd deck. It was mono blue. It had snaps. It was just like you know, had morphlings. It was just like playing this weird like controlish combo hybrid. Because I asked myself, okay, I'm gonna play mono blue in this format. What is blue capable of doing that can win games? And so like I actually put this like kind of terrible cards, right? Like. And I pushed this as hard as I possibly could. And, like, I had, like, I'm on a red deck. And I had a bunch of other decks that, like, no one ever played Pro Tour, right? Like, the, the deck, this concept didn't go anywhere. But I had decided I'm going to build versions of these decks that are the, everything they could be to see what all the interactions in this format are. What are the things that do anything? And once you've done enough of that, you know what's available to you. You know what you can do. And also, like, Maybe there's something there. Like sometimes one of those turns out to be the right thing and you didn't expect it was going to be that. I didn't know it was Fluctuator until usually later. How do you and get Sarah, that confidence sure. to iterate though? Because you're saying that, you know, it's not the first version that has that power or because the potential. Because you see something there. You, you see yourself doing something powerful. And then you say, okay, I'm not giving up on this, right? I'm not, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to ask myself, how do I improve this thing? Slash you say, okay, I'm just going to make this the best version of this thing it can be to see where it tops out and what it looks like. And and so, like, I ended up joining the Mog Squad, the team that I built Fluctuator with. Mm -hmm. Because I was, like, looking for random people on Apprentice. And someone's like, play Scott Johns, Duskal. I didn't know he was. He's good. And I play him. And I have this array of, like, different decks. And I basically smash him with every color in the game. Like, run one after another. Completely different cards, lots of different decks, most of which we never see the light of day. But then he's like, oh, I need to work with this guy. Right? In a way that if I had just played Fluctuator, sure. probably wouldn't have been that impressed. Right? Like, like, okay, you found something. That's cool. Like, I wonder if that deck's good. Maybe we should build it. Mm -hmm. But like, 
this got more interesting, and then we got a, a beautiful working relationship that lasted for years and years, right? It's amazing. But, you know, thinking back more recently, like to Beastmaster, right? With the, um, yeah, Beastmaster's Ascension and, you know, the Aldrati Pro Tour, right? So what was the first thing I do in that Pro Tour? Like, I physically, I, I buy four copies of every card, like physically, I have to to my house. And I start building physical decks. I just say, okay, I'm going to build mono white, mono red, mono black, mono blue, and mono green. Because the mana in this format is kind of terrible, and I want to see what the cards can do. And I don't know what they are, but I'm going to build them. I forget exactly what the other four were, but they were not completely uninteresting. Like, there was something there, like a couple of them. But, like, because of that, I actually, like, was like, okay, what does green do? How do I, like, build something here? What's powerful, right? And I, by doing that, I found Ascension, which basically no one else found, right? Like, one other team kind of found it, but they, they built it a different way. Mm-hmm. And... Because I was trying to force this to, I was trying to force this thing to happen, and then I figured out it actually could happen, right? Like, and it started out bad, right? It was not good until I found Vengevines, mm-hmm. right? I had, and then I put in Vengevines, and then I was like, oh, this deck's really good at casting and bringing back men. This deck's really good at putting Vengevines to play, and it has the other powerful things going on. Maybe it's good actually. Also, I always look at the mana first. Right, so like one of the reasons I was excited by Mono Green from the beginning in that format was because you have Arbor Elf. Right, so you have this fast mana. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, if Green can get fast mana, what's my payoffs? Let's see what the payoffs are. Always, mm-hmm. always, always look to ramp and get payoff. Mm-hmm. Because that might work. Right, and so you develop these, and then after you're doing it for 20 years, or 10 years, or whatever, you have these heuristics in your head of mm-hmm. what, what might be good. Like what to look for. And then I think I just developed those in a way that not that many other players have. And so I would I would look in different places and I'd find different things. Like Mythic, like, wasn't even iterated. Mm. Right? Mythic emerged just straight from my head before the cards were even announced. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I hadn't been playing for a while, and I literally showed up with, I think, almost exactly, without having played a game, almost exactly the final build to play, like, with a bunch of proxies against Cadenas at a, at a bar. To like try it out. And the deck literally had white green unannounced manland in it as a proxy. And I like wrote down like I think three. You three just needed a placeholder. Right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I just wrote down some guess. Because I, I knew yeah, that the it must exist. Right. Yeah. I mean, we'll play some random, like relatively crappy version of this, and like maybe it's better, and it turned out somewhat better than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I thought like it's three four instead of three three. Yeah. Like the important thing was that like Sort of it all falls into principles that like you just push this thing really hard. And like if you're a Flores, right, you find decks I would never find. Because those decks are not naturally powerful, they just happen to beat the things that you're up against. They you they're find... the foil to what's what people are playing, sure. Yeah. Right, right. And so he finds this foil. And then people like usually think in like much more of that direction. Right. Whereas I find mythic because I say to myself, fuck it, we're playing forty six mana sources. Right? Like, who does that? Right. Right? It's crazy. But I saw, wait, how could these do something? How could these play as cards also? I could just do that. Right? And I've been pushing the envelope on this kind of principle for so many years. I was just like, yeah, no, just go way far. Mm-hmm. 
just keep going. It's not like you get and, it every time, but like when you're that, like the payoff is huge when you do hit it, right? I guess to use a yeah. home and, run and, analogy and of, or hit it yeah, out of the park. And another phenomenon that you see with this is often you make something happen that's not supposed to happen yet, but you kind of make it happen. Right. Right? You like you almost make it happen. You're like, it's bad. But you put like so much more work into this than everyone else put into their, their, yeah. their, their, their brews that like your dick almost kind of works. It's like not quite there, but you don't want to give up because you, you enjoy it. You sense there's something there and, and you just, you find a way to make it competitive. So like the fluctuator, yeah. I had the deck with jesters and socks, right? Mm -hmm. Without legacy. Legacy wasn't mm -hmm. announced yet. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that Urza's Legacy contains such cards as Grim Monolith. It was just right? waiting for the future to drop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm playing this deck, and it's got cards that are so bad. That are so bad. I'm playing Volta Key. Volta Key. Yeah. It untaps maybe a Worn Power Stone sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right? That's how bad this deck was before. Mm -hmm. Without Legacy. But it's almost there. It's like, it's like, it's almost, almost there, right? It's almost kind of playable. And I keep thinking, is a new set coming? We'll get some help. The cards won't be this bad. You know, something interesting here. Yeah. And then I met the pre-release back when they didn't spoil it, right? And I open my, my deck. And I look at, I see a grip, I open a grip monolith. You know, just in the, in the pre-release. I just look at it and I just start <laughs> laughing. I just start laughing. Yeah. Right? Because, like, yeah. this is, like... It's here. If I had submitted a card design to Wizards to make my deck work... <laughs> Your invitational card for the next set. To make it I would not have dared make it this good. Mm -hmm. Right? This card is so absurd. Yeah. On its face. It's like... Yeah, okay, it's two and it taps for three, and it doesn't untap. But it untaps for four, naturally, <laughs> and doesn't damage you. Mm-hmm. And it just sort it, of it works. is pretty absurd, yeah. yeah. And like, I just start laughing. It's like, yeah, what do I want? I want a Mana Vault. Mm -hmm. That was exactly my thought, but I want a Mana Vault. Mm -hmm. I want a Mana Vault variant. Something that's like better than Born Power Stone. Born Power Stone mm -hmm. is awful, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I'm mostly playing Key just so I can like play it on turn one and then like I have an Academy that taps for Mana on turn two. Right. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, just like... But really, you like, know what I find so incredible, V is that... There's there's this Johnny no name player out there that has very similar ideas, right? Yeah. Like that person probably was like, "Oh, Fluxurator is awesome! Like this set came out, I want to build it." But that person didn't end up like winning a pro tour with this deck. Didn't develop to the same level. Like, what is the gulf between you and Mister Johnny, who's still playing <laughs> the FNM right now? Like. Like, I'm yeah, you, you know, you gotta put it all together, right? Like, you gotta, you gotta have the playing skill. Or there's that Johnny gotta, that looks at your final deck and it's like, yeah, I thought of that. And it's just like, it's not even in the same league. Like, is it just like your, is it like intellectual horsepower? It's like the sheer force of will. Like, what, what exactly is it? I mean, I do think that a lot of it's just the tower thing. It's like I put in a, a, so much work in, but it's like knowing how to do that. Cause like, what a lot of those Johnnies will do is they won't do proper deliberate practice, right? They won't be thinking at every moment when they play the deck, when they're working on the deck, 
about what they're doing and exactly how to improve and exactly what what is causing the deck to work and not work in what particular ways and what's making it powerful and not powerful. Mm-hmm. And they're asking the wrong, they're not asking the right questions often enough and persistently enough. And they just haven't had the reps from the practice and they're not putting in the hours. Like I put in an insane amount of hours throughout this week. Right? Like I, during my run of like being, you know, good enough that I could like, you know, go to invitationals and like possibly win player of the year if I, things broke well and like, dreaming of challenging Finkel and Kai for, like, that's from the world. I was... I was just so dialed in and working on this all the time. This was my job. This was my shower thoughts. This was my everything. And then later, I come back, right? Like, I get in the Hall of Fame. And, like, I'm good. And I am tremendously efficient because of all my experience. Like, I can... And I'm... I know how to get two places with so few games and so little work compared to what I used to or what almost everyone else does. Right? That's my new superpower. But I just don't have that same obsession and the affordance yeah. to have that obsession. Yeah. Right? And I learned what that does for you. It gets you 40 steps. Right? Like it just reliably gets you 40 steps. So I would show up to these pro tours and I would have these really good strategies. I mean, I was part of a great team also, right, which helps a lot. I'd play well, and I'd do good things, and I'd do okay, but I never broke through, right, during the comeback. I never right. quite got there. I was always, I was always like, two matches out, occasionally one match out. Like, and you think it's just because was, of the work you put yeah. in? It wasn't at that level that you were at before? It was that if I don't... It wasn't all-consuming. You're right. If you, if you don't have that obsession, if you don't, like, learn every little detail, you don't sit there in lectures, as I did literally, like in university, with a fluctuator deck, and like they're <laughs> teaching about, you know, English or history, or whatever. I'm sitting there taking test draws. I'm sitting there taking test draws, looking for little weaknesses, looking for little improvements, looking for techniques and shortcuts, like every little thing, constantly, hundreds, hundreds of these. And like that, that does it, right? That little, that obsession is so important. I'm not saying the other things aren't important, right? And, like, I do think that raw intellectual horsepower plays a, a large role in it. I've, I've learned that I have a lot more of it relative to other people than I than I realized. But it's the point where, like, I was interviewing at Valve for a job, and, like, I didn't quite get it. But at one point, apparently, I left one of the interviews, and I have learned that they turned to each other. And one of them said, I, I was... um trying to solve an algorithm for, like, creating the the probability of, you know, each team winning a match or something, given the selections and legal lines. And one of them turns to the other and he says, is this guy going to solve every problem with raw G? Is he just going to brute force intellectual, like, in this weird way, the solution for first principles all the time? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I kind of am. But, I mean, mm-hmm. not, not, not here, right? Not, not magic where I have all these these decades of heuristics, but in many cases, yeah, it's really what I'm going to do. Sure. And I think that's a, you know, not necessarily a, a good choice for most people, right? If they don't have the same tools, they have different tools that use their own tools. They're, you know, their yeah. comparative advantage. But if you've got, smoke them if you got them, right? Like use what you got, yeah. use your tools. So, so yeah, like I think that, 
having great teams also was often a, a big help. Right? Like I had this huge advantage of now that I've proven myself capable of generating all these ideas and putting in all this work and, and being a good teammate, that really great people wanted to work with me. I don't want to discount that at all. Like, like my, my big run, I couldn't have done it without Scott Johns and Justin Garrett, right? And these other amazing people. And that meant that like when I was playing, it wasn't just me who was studying all of this stuff all the time. It was them too, right? And we were partners. And the rest of the team was a big help as well. And, you know, you can't underestimate having, you know, literal Kai and literal Finkel and all these other people on your team so that people are playing at the highest level with your decks and against your decks and, and seeing what happens. And so, you know, I'm not going to go through the list of, you know, all 50 people I worked yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, it's, it was a murderer's row, right? It was mm -hmm. like some of the best players we've ever played the game. Some of the sure. best teammates you've ever, you could ever hope for. And, you know, I will say Sam Black, though. Like, just, like, in my comeback years was, like, I was the, by far, this this amazing, amazing person to work with. Mm. Right? He would come up with these ideas, and he would push them, and he would do very similar principles in his own very different way. Right? Sam Black does not care what you think of his cards. Sam Black's cards are individually terrible. He's playing the worst pieces of garbage cardboard you have ever seen. Mm -hmm. All the time. He is playing synergies, but they don't look like they do anything that's relevant to any matchup on cards that are terrible. All the time. And he's testing them, and if you think the things he actually plays in tournaments look weird, you should see the test decks. Right. Right? Like, of course, they're more this than anything he ends up with mm -hmm. all the time. But he asks, right, the same kinds of questions I ask. In the, in, with his own specialty. Like, I asked, like, I asked that man and he has sacrifice, for example, right? He's big into sacrifice, right? And again, he asks, you know, what's powerful? What can I do that does a thing that I know I can use to try and win games, right? What's interesting? And then even in pre-modern now, with these cards that have been around for decades, he's able to use this to find interesting, powerful mm -hmm. things to do. He operates on a very similar principles as to how he's able to innovate so much more than almost everybody else, right, in, in the recent years, especially. Yeah, yeah. That he asks this question, you know, what's powerful? What's cool? What's interesting? What does something nothing else does? Right? What has potential? And then he explores it. And he explores it even though you play games against him, and it seems like he's just dirtling the weirdest dirtle you've You were dirtle. saying the, the testing versions of the decks were looked even worse, obviously, because... Um, yeah, yeah, no, know. quite often... He would play a pile of cards that you'd never thought to put into anything. And you'd play a few games, and he'd be like, well, that didn't work. Right? Like, right. Or I see why it doesn't work. Or he'd do it, and then he'd say, oh, I know what I have to do. And he'd come back half an hour later, and he'd change 20 cards. Mm -hmm. And now it's a different, importantly different pile mm -hmm. of weird dirtling. He just had to work and through that. Yeah. Right. And then he'd do this five times today. Right? Uh -huh. And the final version would be like, and then, like, one time in four, the final version would be, like, kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. But, like, three times in four, I'd be like, that's just what he did today. Like, he'd also help you with your thing, and, like, you know, he wouldn't mm -hmm. be a bad teammate. But, like, you don't get there if you're not willing to, to go through the stuff that sucks. Right? If you're not willing to – if Edison's not willing to find a thousand ways not to make a light bulb, he's not going to make a light bulb. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, you know, this kind of philosophy of weirdness is – 
we're willing to push things where we see potential and suffer through and try weird things and bad cards and just like go for the synergies and a combination of bad cards and raw power and also like just things that don't seem like they're what you want to be doing given your opponents and yeah, like, uh, it works better, obviously, in some extent, when everyone else is being kind of, like, slack, is slacking off a bit on their tightness, <laughs> and, like, kind sure. of dirtling around themselves, or, like, not, like, going for the throat in the same way, and then, like, later in formats where everybody's, like, being very precise, it can be, like, harder to get away with stuff, but, no, we, we found some really, you know, I found some really cool stuff, he found some really cool stuff, like, back in the day, like, I would end up helping with his deck much more often than I would, we would go with my deck, although occasionally we still go with mine, and... It still confuses me, actually, a lot of the times, like, why a lot of the decks that we built, like, just die. Like, I often be like, I'll play it, Sam will play it, Dennis will play it, like, one other person will play it, the rest of the team will just, like, not be that impressed. And we'll, like, average seven and three. And then I'll write it up. And post it. And explain it. And Sam will write Even it. explain it, right? It's not just a deck list. That yeah, no, I'll, I'll say, like, here's why it works. Here's why you made these decisions. And you can take this to your tournament next week. And then it's not that, like, people try it out and it doesn't work. And it turns out that it was just we were really good players who, like, took people by surprise. You're saying and... it's not because of that? Or... Well, we don't know. I'm saying we don't We don't. We don't. That would be that my out. guess, is that maybe, like, you need to pilot it a certain way and people that will just pick it up they just don't have the... I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some of that. But, like, what was persistently true was that, like, literally nobody ever played deck again. Hmm. Right? Like, there was just never reports. Like, nobody ever said, like, you know, dude, I tried your deck, and I came in, you know, 67th, and it didn't work so well, and here's, like, it, some pieces. Was it because of, like, a V Sam Black kind of brand, where it's, like, you know, only they can make it work, or that's just them I mean, like, again or maybe, something? Maybe people know. had that feeling of... You know, these things only work when they do them, and if the rest of the team didn't buy into it and they didn't make top eight, we're going to ignore you. I, although I think I think he had an incident where he made... I mean, he, yeah, he had some incidents where he did really well, and they just ignored him anyway. But, mm. yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing where, like, things get... Uh, things will do well, and I'll think they're really powerful. And then people just won't run with them, even Yeah, then. you think at the very least Magic players will be results-oriented. Like, this thing got a result, so let me... Let me give it a shot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, sometimes you get vindicated, right? Because, like, Turboland is the ultimate version of this, right? I have been playing Turboland in various forms for, like, five years. This is the Horn of Greed Exploration Time Warp deck, right? And so I was playing this core when it sucked, when it wasn't very good. And for a while, I was playing Constant Mists and Glacial Chasm and other ways to, like, endlessly, like, kind of fog. And, like, Thawne Glaciers was central to the strategy. And, like, it was... All very, very borderline. But, like, I made day two of a Grand Prix. And I, like, you know, was, was like, almost good. It definitely wasn't actually good back then, right? <laughs> and then, but because I'd put in these years of work, right? And then at one point, I'm at a Pro Tour. And I see somebody playing a variant of it that he got. I mean, he obviously built it off of my stuff. But, like, he, he said so. And we talked a bit. And he showed it to me, and then suddenly it's like, oh, you can play one battlefield scrounger as your creature, and source the plasters isn't in the format anymore, so it's fine. And then you can, you know, here's this trick of curse and reclamation, and then you can use moments piece, and you can mill it off of the. Oh. Right. 
And I was like, oh, that's really good. And then we actually had this other phenomenon where it's like Justin Gary won that that Pro Tour with an oak deck that like I played, he played, and one other person on our team played, and no one else did. And I ended up four and three and missed the missed the cut. I didn't I got outplayed, frankly, uh on day one. I had some like weird mind games that I like. Yeah, like I like I brainstormed them like the forbidden in my hand and the counter spell my deck and the guy named the one the guy named Forbid. And I had one forbidden my deck and I'm just like, God, you're kidding me. Mm. It's like, you know, like I you know that's not even in my range. Like, what are you doing? I only have, I can only have the Ace of Clubs. Like, you can't, uh. <laughs> you know, but like, and like, just stuff like that. Just like, I just kept like, not quite getting the maximum out of it. I think Justin played the deck really well. But like, after that tournament, you know, we basically didn't see Cognivore Oak again, even though he won. And, but a week later, we went to, a week or a week and a half later, we went to New Orleans, right, for the, for the Grand Prix. And I had taken this other person's you know, Turbo Land build. And because I had years of experience with this deck, I knew exactly which things he found were right instinctively, which ones I had to try, which ones were wrong, built a new sideboard, changed a few cards, came in, you know, had the only copy of the deck, played it, won. And now that I had won that tournament, suddenly everybody wanted to play Turbo Land. I mean, not everyone, but like, I seem to be in a group that were interested. Yeah. Like, people are results-oriented in that sense. Uh-huh. Like, they're much, much more results oriented on the winner, or they always have been. That's true. Percentages, mm-hmm. and I, I, it's always a mistake, right? But at the same mm-hmm. time, one of the things I learned from my my attempted comeback, and I had a lot of fun with the comeback. I'm glad I did it. Was there was a huge difference between what it takes to make day two and hang around, and like kind of make the money, and what it takes to make top eight and win. Because, you know, I had this thing where, like, okay, if I'm in the loser's bracket, I'm going to kick ass. I am going to own people because I'm doing inherently powerful things and I understand the game. And I'm going to outplay them and I'm going to keep my focus in the loser's bracket, something I've always been very, very good at, where other people have kind of given up, right? You're at two and four and four and four is the cut and technically you're in it, but you're almost not in it. And the other guy and your opponent is, like, going through the motions but doesn't really care and I was always like, no, I'm going to double down and be so dialed in here because like, it's winner go home, right? I got to fight for my reputation. I got to fight for my legacy here. I got to make this. Mm. You know, like, there's a chance. Right. Given up. This is your comeback. Yeah. This is my comeback in its own way, right? I just like, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to have the best record, the best story I can. I'm going to tell myself I, did, I left it all on the table. Right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just give up. I never gave up. Even eliminated, I never gave up, right? Like, I'm two and four. I'm like one in five. One in five. And I'm like, no. I'm not coming home and telling the story about this deck. And I have one win. I'm going to get three. There's nothing at stake here whatsoever. I'm getting my third win. I am doing this. And usually I got it. Yeah. You know, like, my record there was very, very good. And again, mm-hmm. because my opponent didn't care. But, like, the skill in caring, right, in that spot. And so, you know... If I was like in the normal mode, right, where like we're I'm four and four or whatever, I, I'm playing against people who are doing okay. Again, like they're the people who didn't put in the right, didn't put in all the work, who aren't as skilled, who aren't at this level. And again, they're imprecise enough that my inherent strategy of doing powerful things, of being good at the game in general, was good enough that I usually won. And then, occasionally, 
I would end up at six and one or like, you know, in the top tier brackets. And now, you know, what's going on? Well, now you're playing against professional players. That's, you know, Josh Hutter laden up against you. Mm-hmm. And he knows what he's doing. He has prepared. He knows his deck. He figured out what matters in this format. He knows how the matchups work. You know, he knows how the card interactions work. And he put in the time and you didn't. Not the same way. Right? And he knows how the sideboard games work. He knows exactly how his plan works. He's He knows how to read you. You know, he does everything. And now you just get, I got go killed. Reliably in those matches. You know, I get to those matches and like, so often it would be like, no, you, you, you just didn't think about like the next two levels up. And so you're just, you know, you're just completely outclassed here. Mm-hmm. You know, your deck is fine until now. And now you just like, you have no chance. Because that's one of the things of like, if you're playing that type of game and your opponent is like, I got to where you are in terms of thinking about things. And then I figure out how to beat you. You lose. Mm-hmm. Right. If you don't have it, and then I figure out how to beat you. Yeah, I'm two it. levels above you. I was you're you're down here. I'm up here, kind of thing. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing you can do, right? You're just you're just dead, and they're good at the game. You just you're just dead. Yeah. And and it's unfortunate, but you know, so often I would show up and be like, okay, my cards don't even matter anymore. Like I'm doing something that's irrelevant. You found something that just like renders that not a thing, and this like I'm too slow, or that angle doesn't matter. You know, or whatever it is. Yeah. And whoops. And that's a sucky feeling, you know, when you show up to the tournament, you realize that, like, you're just subtly outclassed in this way. Uh, but, you know, you made, you made some bad assumptions and, and you're not going to make it. And then after a while, you know, it added up and it was like, okay, I can keep doing this, but it's a lot of time and it's a lot of work. And, the thing that I'm trying to do, the breakthrough that I'm looking for, is just not going to happen unless I step it up, mm-hmm. right? But also, I'm getting old. And so, like, this is the thing that ultimately killed it, was I was playing one of these sandbox specials, this white-black uh, Vermont's deck. And I'm playing Paolo in the last round, and I think we were 5-2. And, and we showed up the feature match area. And there are several points I remember myself saying okay or otherwise like making a move. And then like 10 seconds later, I'm like, why did I do that? It was an obvious thing to do and I just didn't do it. And then you I just catch yourself in a haze. making misplays? Is that what it sounds I'm like? I'm just sort of in a haze. I'm just like not dialed. I'm not, I'm pro- not probably just dialed not in. I'm, in. Not noticing, okay. I'm not noticing things, right? I'm just yeah. sort of letting things happen, right? And then I'm sitting there after the match, which he wins. Right? And I'm not sure if I would have won the match with better play or not. I definitely would have gotten myself a better chance to win the match. And I'm like, I wasn't awake. I just wasn't. My mental reserve of energy was gone. Right? I would never have played like that in round one of Constructive. Right? In round four or five. But by round eight, I just wasn't here. Oh, you mean like some sort of mental stamina? Yeah, I just don't have the mental stamina I used to. Like, this would never have happened to me 20 years ago, right? But now, right? Paulo's sitting there, and he's playing well. He has no problem with playing eight rounds. And I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. 
not properly. And the next day, same thing, right? Like I'm, I'm okay in the beginning, but by the end of it, like I can tell that like I'm not playing very well. And it turns out okay. I win my last round, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because I'm like at that point, I'm like playing for thirtieth or something, right? And I like, but like I can tell that I'm like not being that precise. Kind right? of fading. Like, it's just not sure. I'm giving up a few percent. Like it's just like, and that few percent will kill you when you're mm -hmm. trying to make top eight because these players mm -hmm. are so much better. Like the sorting mm -hmm. really matters. It really works. And so I'm just coming back. I'm like, yeah, it's only gonna get worse, right? And the similar phenomenon I noticed, like every damn time I go to a pro tour, I made day two. If I played out the whole way and I was fighting for it, you know, I'd have a headache at the end of it and a bad one. Right, my my brain would just not be like was like, I don't know what you just asked me to do, but I don't like it. Right, like I don't do that anymore. That's not okay. And like, if I never made Sunday and a third day, yeah, I would have been not in a good place. Yeah, and I probably would be able to just like mentally like force myself to go. The stakes would just keep me going. Right, like I hop myself up on chocolate and I just go. But like, <laughs> sure. I don't drink coffee. But. You know, it's definitely just I wasn't in a good place. You know, I always have to suffer after. I have this, this suffering thing afterwards. That's what I, during the pandemic, we had a, a somewhat pro tour, like purely online that I was invited to. And like, I really appreciated that because that was like the one pro tour where this didn't happen to me. Like I'm on Arena. I'm also playing like Mono Green, Super Fast Aggro. Mm -hmm. Probably because I thought I, probably because I thought I had something probably because I didn't want to worry about this problem. And like, I played the whole time. I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm good. You know, I, I can refresh between rounds, but like, you know, it just wasn't, the experience was just something that's like, it's the equivalent of the, the, the old guy who goes to the club, right? He's the old <laughs> man in the club. But that's so and fascinating like, because like yeah. that mental fatigue, I w you think that there's some way to overcome that, right? Because I've talked to other players this year, even like a Kai Buddha, and he's like, it's just for him, everybody's different, right? But for him, it's really just about the level of preparation you put in. So if you're more prepared, you play more magic, you think more magic, you wouldn't be as mentally tired, right? Because you're, you could then like take care of some of that mental thinking. You could maybe start doing it subconsciously, would you not? I didn't put a lot of truth in there. Like if, if I was willing to and able to put in so much work, like old school level, then I came in with the level of preparation I had, like with Fluctuator, right? Or with Solution, or with Fires, or with these other decks that I, I knew backwards and forwards, right? With Rising Waters, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. That, like, in those tournaments, there were so many rounds, I almost didn't think at all. Right. Right? It was just a break. It was just yeah. like, okay, yeah, my opponent is doing exactly the things I expected. Yep. The the plays the will take I less expected. less mental energy. I'm not gonna say autopilot, but you could you could use less energy on every every turn, I'll right? Say it. You won't say it, but I will. Yeah, absolutely. I just, everything is going according to plan, right? Like I am just executing the plan. Right? And the it's easy to execute the plan. You're sitting there and it's like you're playing the game, there's not a different one you were shuffling the shuffling the deck in between rounds. You're just like you're waiting for the guy to make a play. Right, like you're, 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 you're. If anything, you're just studying him and trying to get a read on him. Mm -hmm. Like, what's in his hand? What are you thinking about? What is, you know, how is he going to approach this game? What does he think? I'm, how do you think my strategy works? Like that I'm approaching. 
and you're just waiting. You're doing that while waiting to make a move because you know what you're going to do. And that helps a lot. I don't think it's... I still think you, there'd be problems anyway. But also, the game changed in terms of the, the structure. So, like back in the day, I was able to have this deadly amount of preparation. Because I would lock my deck in with weeks to go. Often. Right? Like, I would know everything. I would have, like, slowly converged on this strategy. And then, like, I would often just, like, not play very much magic in the last week, even, to preserve my my mental perspective. Mm -hmm. I've already done everything I want to do. And, like, I would just investigate this little thing if I think there's something to check. But, like, I'm back to, like, kind of theorizing and, and relaxing. And, like, I showed up to Japan for Tokyo for the one I won on Tuesday. And rather than preparing, I spent, like, a day in a hotel room with like a Walkman and some CDs listening to music, walking around Japan yep. and getting rid of my jet lag. So I knew what I was going to do. I'm like, okay, if I show up and I'm completely wrong about what's going on in this metagame, I have to panic. If I'm right, none of these cards ever change. Mm -hmm. I showed up, it was very right. Yeah, it was obviously correct. I think I played a handful of games against someone who brought a like, weird control deck that's kind of like a equivalent of a uh, shakeout run i'm just thinking about like you know when you run a a marathon a flawed analogy but like there's nothing you can do in the final week leading to a marathon like you you're not you're either ready or you're not like so running yeah. like a couple kilometers before the day before that doesn't help you you should actually just get rested uh right, except, because yeah yeah, yeah right, no, exactly exactly except something big changed, right? Right, then you have to which scramble was, and make some adjustments. Which is, they started releasing the set and then two weeks later have the Pro Tour. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. something, you know, something it's really close change. to that, right? Like, like yeah, two weeks. Very, very different schedule. And also, they started having an online, like, people would be playing with the Pro Tour format in public continuously and having tournaments, big tournaments in the Pro Tour format. So if you did your work before the last two weeks, you often had to throw your work out the window. Because like, okay, you had a deck. It was interesting. And now someone else played it in a tournament. Now everyone's preparing for it. Yep. And they built a better version than you did in yep. this way. So like yep. now you're, your version doesn't work. And also this is other deck you didn't even think about. And now everyone's trying out that. And the metagame is completely shifting under your feet like every few days. So like what ends up happening is we would rent a house. Right, literally, literally went to house. And like, there'd be 12 of us, like top pros, living in this house, spending all day drafting and playing constructed and building decks. But you wouldn't have this long period because you'd be constantly interacting with the outside world. It has to be right at the end. Right? And so you then didn't have this period of time that I would often have. Other players didn't work that way and often wouldn't have it. Where you could relax or just play the same 75 over and over again to within an inch of its life and like maybe change one or two cards and like get really dialed in. And you know, to the point where like, I made it a point of principle, maybe even pride to like have my deck basically ready well in advance, right? Or maybe choose between two decks so that I could get this tuning stuff right and understand it, right? And like 
I think a lot of players punt a lot of value at these tournaments by audibling and changing things way too late. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was, I think, one time in my career where I just switched to a deck I hadn't played before, I hadn't seen before from not a teammate. That I was like, I wasn't happy. I was at Worlds in Australia. And someone showed me Burning Wish Segatog, and I was completely unhappy with my current choices. And I was like, oh, yeah, this deck is more powerful than what I've seen. I think it's just good. I can probably play it fine because I've played enough similar things. And I played it, and I actually, like, definitely did better than I would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I would have made top eight of that tournament if, I think, if I had If you gotten preferred that deck. earlier with that deck. If right. I had gotten that deck a week earlier, right. I took a draw with that deck against uh, Steve OMX because mm-hmm. I was playing too slowly because I didn't have automatic motions ready to go and I had mm-hmm. to think all the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. because I didn't know like what was my board like how did this work what do I go for here mm-hmm. etc yeah, burning bush if I went that match faster right and therefore encouraged him to play faster it's like you know you pick yeah, up like a mutual thing. yeah then it right, would have turned out very different you play slow, you play slow like yeah mm-hmm. if that match finishes and they win it I finished 12 or something, right? I I, mm-hmm. I I was one win out. I think I make it. If I'm also prepared in block, right? Then block, I was scrambling the entire time during the tournament as well. If I'm also prepared in block, even if I play the same 75, I think I clearly, like, I'm a huge favorite to make mm-hmm. it, given I, I killed limited. Right? Mm-hmm. And then, like... And I remember that scene where, like, the guy who, I forget, I actually forget who it was, I'm sorry about that, but, like, the guy who shared it with me, the deck, I'm talking to him, and then Kai comes up to us, who's also playing the deck, but who, like, had it for a while, and, like, he's like, yeah, you shared it with Svee, like, the night before? And he's like, yeah, and Kai just, like, fox kicks him. Like, not really, <laughs> like, you know, he's like, you're like yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, out of the bag. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. good! Why are you mm-hmm. giving good players good decks? Stop it! Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the mm-hmm. reason he did it was because he wanted my help on on block. Yeah. Right? Like we had a deal. I'm like, I'll, you know, you help me with the standard and mm-hmm. I'll you know, we'll sure. be in the same room. Value exchange. You know, in... Yeah. Right, right. Value exchange. And like we, we built a deck together for, for block and we did our best. And like it was a good deal for everyone. But like it was that was a very unique experience. And then you know, the other time was with uh the aristocrats. Right? Well Sam Block has this deck. Oh ah, yeah. yeah. And like he's been playing this crazy mix of cards, it doesn't work. And then, like, on Wednesday, he makes it work. Right? Like, he gets it to where it <laughs> needs to be. Ten iterations later, it works, finally. <laughs> like, on, like, on Monday or Tuesday, it starts being good. And then, like, on Wednesday, it's good enough that he can show us it's good. It's almost like the and lyrics like, of a song or something. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I start, you know, and I, I'm relatively early convert. But for me, it's relatively late. Because like, everyone else is used to this idea that some teammate mm-hmm. misses them on Wednesday. And I'm just not. And so I'm going in and, you know, I have like no experience playing this thing. And it's a really complicated, weird ass deck. It's really hard to play well, right? It's like got all these interactions that like nobody knows. And I guess it's a completely different experience. And I thought I got so much better at the deck during the tournament, right? Like by the end of the tournament, I was playing it really well, I thought. (laughs) Like at the start of the tournament, I was like... Pretty, pretty I, I know that iffy. feeling. I've not played in a pro tour, but I know that feeling. It's it's a good and also a bad feeling to know, like, okay, I'm finally at that level after you're like, like halfway through the re- tournament. This deck's really, really good. <laughs> we we crushed it, but yeah. I'm not ready. I am mm-hmm. not ready. It just this was better. Like I, I had a white green 
Very interesting, unique deck. The human deck that I was going to play instead. This was just obviously better. And it's like, okay, I have to give myself a chance. And this is one of the things where it's like, okay, I could end up winning this tournament because, like, when it counts, I'm going to have the experience, right? If I can just make it through and be in a good spot. And I ended up, like, you know, two wins out or something. I was, like, I just too far behind and, like, things broke badly. I think there was a lot of mana screw involved. But, like, and then Martel, you know, who plays it, like, so, like, Sand Black's playing the deck one way and I'm playing it the second way. And Martel, who won, is playing it a third way. And then, like, I'm watching him play, so, like, so he gives me, um, one of the one of the one of the uh, semifinals or finals. I think one of the one of, one of the matchups of the test, right? Like during our in case he gets like not the quarterfinal, but like in case he gets to a semi or a final. And I play around with it. I figure out if I take champion of the parish out of the deck, and I play it as a something I'd been doing in the tournament slowly as I realized like how certain matchups worked. I'm like, well, if I play champion of the parish, and I put it out in turn one, it's great because either they kill it or it comes pretty big. But if I draw it later, it's often terrible, right? And I'm risking something going wrong by doing this. I'm giving myself a way to not do anything that powerful, right? I'm exposing a card where it's just a 1-1 one, one for a while, even if it's on turn one. And later on, it's not doing anything that special. And it's taking the spots away from all my other synergies and all my other things I could be doing that are more powerful in some sense, right? Just to try and get some, like, early speed of momentum. So what if I check it out? And so like I'm, I'm testing, and I forget what the other deck was. I think it was the final, actually. And I, I, I take the, the champion <laughs> of the parish out. The, I'm testing for the final, right? And I take the... That actually happened. I take the champions out, and I'm playing against someone who's playing the other deck. I go like 7-1, and one, or like I, I crush him after something. And I'm just like owning this matchup, right? Because I figured out that like I just have more power. I'm just more, much more powerful than you are. I don't need to start this way, right? Because now that I know I won't draw it later, right? I can afford to play this more deliberate game, even though the deck it looks it looks so weird not to do this, mm -hmm. but it's actually fun. And then I talk to Tom, and I tell him what I did, and he just says, "No, that's dumb. I'm not doing that." <laughs> just just dismisses it. Sure. I mean, yeah, and like I wasn't surprised. I wasn't that surprised. I mean, but, like, all I'm magic like, okay. players, we all have our own confidence about how things should and shouldn't be, right? Yeah. Yourself I included. I knew it was anti-intuitive, right? And so, like, I and it's definitely not what Sam Black had in mind when he built the deck, right? Nobody thought about doing this, and I'm like, uh -huh. this is what you should do. But often, like in top eight testing, when you know your opponent's list, you come up with some very strange thing to do in a particular matchup that like nobody ever considered before, and it's just amazing. It's right. actually reasonably common. Because, like, you it's find just a way a to break game. that information symmetry. Yeah. or It's a completely yeah. different game once you see the list in front of you, right? Like, And this is one of the reasons why I thought early on I would build my deck such that like I had more optionality and more interesting op more interesting possibilities in them, including after Borg, so that my opponents couldn't lock me into what, I, what they knew I was doing and do something narrow to beat me in the top eight, and that I could figure out something that I didn't think about right in the top eight. And... I would actually think about these things like well in advance, right? Because like all the values in winning the top eight, right? This has been winning. Like well, winning is what matters. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. like in this tournament, right, I would be like, okay, can you just do this? And then of course he sits down, he plays that same matchup, and like he goes like champion, 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 protect, protect, crush. Right? Just like completely curb stops the guy. 
right? And just wins the, wins the pro tour. And now it's like, what was I even thinking, right? It's obviously, he wasn't, like, I wasn't even going to have that card in my deck. Like, I'm insane. Yeah, but, like, well, that's kind of results-based thinking, right? That's dangerous. Right, right, but that's the thing. It's results-based thinking. And, like, I, the other strategy would work too, I think. Like, it's just, like, I think it was just a great matchup if you do anything reasonable. But, like, I thought, like, he was taking an unnecessary chance, right? He was putting himself in the trenches where... Like, he draws it later on, and race. it's not a powerful card. It's right, not gas. If you guess. win this race, it's a problem, whereas you didn't have to race the guy. You could have you could have accepted that he was the beatdown, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you would have been in a great spot. Like, once you accept he's the beatdown, you almost never lose. Because, like, they actually don't know how to deal with Forest Rocket, or they don't know how to deal with Venko Forest Crad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The next is not equipped, right? Like, but, you know, he did a different way, and he won. And, and that's just, you know, I this deck was just so interesting and flexible, you could do all these different things. And, like, right. he goes, we'll never know who was right, because, like, the deck was never played again, because the format was just never played in that same way. Right. We don't have that counterfactual. Yeah. Right, right. And it it makes me think back to to Tokyo, actually, where, um, so, I make the top eight with the solution. And I have these great teammates, right? The British, who work really hard, and also these other good teammates from Germany, but, like, especially the British in this case. And we do this thing where it's like, okay, traditionally, we'd all get together at dinner, and we'd talk about the strategies, and we work together. But here we something a little different, which was, I'm in Japan. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to have a nice, quiet dinner on my own and go directly to sleep. And they are going to work on it without me. Right? Because I understand this deck well enough. And in the morning, they're going to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And they come to me in the morning and they say, you're taking out Factor Fiction. against. Uh, I'm up against a, a blue-red-black deck. Like a control deck. It's like one of the harder matchups for what I'm doing because like it's not what I've been designed to build. But he, he has a lot of red removal, so it's not like it's a terrible matchup. It's just it's tricky. And they're like, you don't fight the card advantage war. You just bring in all of the offense. You just have idle return, right? Not not always. Still have your absorbs and everything, but like you don't play factor fiction. You don't try to like hang back and end step factor fiction him. You don't try to like get him tapped out so you can factor fiction. You play that game, you're in trouble. But if you just take out the factor fictions, and you just keep pressuring him, just have threat density. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I sit there and I tank and I think about it for like a minute. And I think through how this matchup works. I have played a ton of we played a practice against a very similar, a similar deck, like in our testing. I'm like, you know what? Literally nobody ever proposed, even in jest or in theory, doing this the entire time you're testing this deck, in any matchup, any reason. But you're just correct. You're just obviously correct. Right? And I do it, and it's just obviously correct. And you could buy into it at that moment in time, despite never yeah. having tested that configuration. And that's like, that won't be the pro tour, right? Because like, like, that was the hard matchup in the top eight. And, like, it very clearly helped me win that match, right? And, like, once I won that match, I then had a semifinal against Benefell where I was playing against exactly the red, exactly the standard red-green deck. I knew exactly what to do. And then I had a final where, like, I did it again. Look at the blue-black deck, right? I was up against uh, Vegeta. And yeah. I knew that, like, yeah, this is exactly the same situation, right? If I just keep pressuring him, 
and don't try to fight card for card, it's really hard for him to win. And the way that he sideboarded it was like basically impossible. Like he sort of despaired. He saw my sideboard, like, and the kind of despair that I was bringing in, like, 11 or 13 or something. And I was just like, mm -hmm. I, what do I even do? Mm -hmm. I can't beat Disrupt mm -hmm. and Game just set not and Purifying and Crusading Knight. Yeah, yeah. I bring in 13. Right? I'm going plus 13 cards. And, like, after I won game one, after discarding, he just, like, yeah, he he thought he had to go into ultra control mode and just fight this really, really slow, like, wait forever battle. But that's, like, a mistake players often make. Because mm. the Magic Beast obviously didn't know what experience with except the one actually played in the Swiss. But, like, that's a mistake players often make, which is they're in a bad spot. And so they double down on, like, this really hard road and give themselves no chance to get lucky. Right? Yeah. Like if he like when I was working on that matchup, it's like, no, the way he wins is he plays a Phyrexian Scuda fast. He gets a five five black creature. And then I happen not to have an answer. Right? And then he uses all of his removal and stuff to kind of half through. And like he he beats he just actually kills me. I, I think you're also touching on something here. Um I've often heard this and I think you're in the intuitive player category like i've often heard that you know even on the pt there are different tiers of players maybe it's like what you said like top eight versus day one versus day two players it's like there are players that um i know you said you're brute force trying different cards in block but there are players that are brute forcing in a different way they're brute forcing like all the testing and all the matchups they they know the things inside out because they prepared uh better more than anybody else right or in their circle um, but for you, it seems like you're doing that. Plus, you're also bringing this level of intuition and adaptation on the fly that not all pro players can. Like, you, you, like, uh, like, like, if someone else in a similar shoes as you, like, don't play fact or fiction, they wouldn't listen to that because they wouldn't trust it. They wouldn't trust the fact that um, they didn't test with it, uh, taking it out. So it's like they or they can't they can't fathom making like on the fly changes like champion, champion of the parish. Okay. Let's, let's just not play them, uh, you know, in the finals or in the top eight, like they can't, and this is nothing against Fujita or Martel or anybody. I'm just saying that they're amazing players. They are. I'm just saying there seems to be like a, another gear that you have in terms of adaptation, right? Yeah, I, 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 I guess in this particular case, I mean, Martel's, you know, they're all, everyone's adaptable in different ways, right? I'm sure they have, advantages mm -hmm. over me that, that, that I don't I'm not throwing shade at any of, particular people. I'm yeah, just saying that very clear. We're yeah. not throwing shade at absolutely anyone. Or I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not bragging. Yeah, I'm just saying that but you seem to process the game in, in a, in a unique way. That's I, what I I'm think saying. you have to, to win at the pro tour level, uh, because you're going to face different kinds of challenges. When you, it's not just the, the deck lists. It's when you play against players who are on another level, who understand the methods on another level, you will find out that your testing didn't mean, as much as you thought it did, mm. right? If you're just looking at the matchups, looking at the results, looking at what caused you to win. And this got driven home to me so forcefully in the Pro Tour, I think it was in Philadelphia. This was the, uh, what, the Eldrain, the first Eldrain uh, Pro Tour, the Oka mm. Pro Tour, right? Mm. Like everyone's playing Oka. Yeah. And so, yeah, at the time there was like, you know, a ton of blue-green Oko running around everywhere. And I had been playing on Arena. So I didn't really have a team the same way. 
at the same level. I had a little bit of a team, but not the same way. And so I was like hanging around in Diamond or something. And then I figured out a new build where I took the Oko deck. I maxed out the Mana Acceleration because I always do that. But then I combined it with Red. And I put in four... Um, what's all with the four RR equipment that gets cost reduction for every attacker. Oh, Ember Cleave, right? Is that it? Okay, right, right. Ember, I put four Ember Cleaves, right? On top of everything else. And I put in, um, like, the goblins that generate other goblins and a bunch of other, like, so I can get a bunch of other, um, to get enough attackers I can, like, often play it on turn three, Ember Cleave on turn three. And, like, some other ways to make this just work for me. And so, effectively, I had this deck where it's like, okay, I have all the Oko stupid draws that everyone else has. But I also have these stupid Ember Cleave draws that just crush people, right? Mm -hmm. That are, like, I'm the best Ember Cleave deck and I'm about the best Oko deck as well. And I play it on Arena and I crush everyone on Arena, right? I just, I go like 10 and 1 to get to hit Mythic from where I start. And then I hit Mythic and I go straight up to like number 5 just straight at the top of the list. I'm winning, you know, I'm a top medic. I'm winning 75% of my matches. I'm loving life. And, like, I don't understand, because I haven't played a Pro Tour in a while, this is not real life, right? That I'm yeah. not in real life right now. Right. And so I think I've got it made that I know how people play against this deck. I know how people play their Oko deck. And I've got this thing that just kicks their... I, this is my this is my pro tour. I'm winning this yeah, deck. You figured it out. No one else has this deck. Mm -hmm. I broke the format. I think I broke the format, right? I show up to the tournament. It's and also like there isn't that much Oko at the top. It's like, you know, a third Oko or half Oko. And I'm beating the Oko. Right. Deck. People are playing those control decks to 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 fight there's, Oko. There's a bunch stuff. of people playing, you know, these uh Fires of Invention decks and these other, yep, you know, fires. random other Yeah, these these random five other decks and like it's all like it also, like, these Oko decks are just going to win in this metagame, but, like, you know, it's not... Anyway, I show up. It's, like, 67% Oko. And I'm like, okay, that's a lot. And, like, my Oko matchup is, like, only slightly favored because, like, a lot of the key cards, we just all have them. But it'll be fine. And then I find out, no. These people have gone deep into this mirror match. They have played dozens and dozens of mirror matches against other pros, including after sideboard. And they've learned all these nuances. And they picked up on all these details. And they figured out what matters. You know what doesn't matter very much? Embercleave. Right? Like, mm -hmm. what I'm doing is just not centrally what matters here. And, like, I have done a thing that I have done reasonably often, which I have a deck that crushes, that's a scrub crusher. That completely, completely owns people who are not doing the thing that everyone's doing. But now everyone's doing the thing, and they're much better at it against each other than any of your testing would indicate. This also happened there was a tournament I think LA, which was um the Aetherling block. I forget exactly what it's called. But um we were playing a a blue, white, green Is it control Time Spiral block. or Planar Chaos? Yeah, 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 One yeah, of those? Yeah, yeah. We're playing so we are playing blue, white, green, which gives us a certain number of advantages that we get Luxed on higher arcs and you know a bunch of other good stuff cards and like the deck's really really good against like 
the generic Broadfield. Uh-huh. But it turns out that like basically everyone's playing blue white. You know, a third of the next third of the field is playing blue white black control, and you know you're just playing this control war at that point. And this would basic, and but they have the black discard. You don't, right? So like you're 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 in some trouble. But like the bigger problem is that they thought the field was full of these blue white black control decks, and you didn't. So like you prepared for the matchup as if it was one matchup among many. And you thought you were okay. But they prepared for the mirror matchup. And they went deep. And they metagamed. And they, like, sacrificed a bunch of percentage against everyone else to be strong in this mirror. And they have all of these discard spells. And they have all of this, like, over-the-top control-y stuff. And you didn't see that coming. This matchup mm-hmm. is... And they know how to play. So this matchup is so much harder than you thought it was because all that stuff hits you, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, like, you're still playing the control game. So, like, all the cards are still good. Their deck is just nothing but bangers against you. Nothing but cards you don't want to play against. And your deck is, like, not, just not good. Just, just can't, can't Okay, handle. I'm suddenly remembering something. Did you make a tweet about this a while back? Or maybe it was you or Sam Black, where it was a question about, like, when you say a deck is, like, X percent versus this deck, is it actually against the generic Magic player? Or is it when the top... the the top level pros are playing against each other. I seem to remember some sort of discussion on that on Twitter. It wasn't me, but, but it's it, the right. I think it was it, Sam, but I wonder if you guys maybe talked about it or somehow I mean, the we ideas don't talk as much any, overlapped. Yeah, we don't talk as much, any, yeah, don't talk yeah, as much anymore. I, I could swear but, like yeah. he asked that exact same question and there was like some sort of debate that happened between him and PV on this. Like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I always follow those. Right? I follow everyone involved. And so uh-huh. like they were having good discussions and I think we remember this. Right, and so like when people talk about this is X percent against that, I think they normally mean, you know, mythic on arena average, players. right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like number five hundred on arena plays against mm-hmm. number six hundred on arena, and they're playing these decks. What does that look like? Is yeah, that's my assumption too. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not random player at a store, and it's also not the very mm-hmm. top. Yeah. And you're you're actually touching on something more than that too, which is that you know when mirrors become the uh, the central thing, then then they go deeper, right? So that's not even the just the percentages. That's like you're you're materially changing the percentages uh, because right. of this fifty fifty. Exactly like the the the, 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 pro- the reason why it's so hard to win if you're not prepared is because it's exactly the places that don't come up in normal play where these people went deep that are the right. matches that determine the Pro Tour, right? So, like, you are just as good as they are against the field. You can get to that matchup. Mm-hmm. But in that winner's bracket matchup, you are at a severe disadvantage mm-hmm. if you're not playing that high-level game that they are playing. And mm-hmm. again, just playing matches at the top of Mythic on Arena just does not do this. At all. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I... I was able multiple times to prepare for tournaments, hit like the top of arena with a deck and stay there and feel like I was in good shape and then show up to the pro tour and find that I just didn't know how the format worked. Not really. Like, mm-hmm. cause like these people were playing these next level games against each other that I just didn't understand were coming. And it was just not the same thing. Right. I mean, when Anna Burchett won her, um, that Pro Tour. I was playing my version of Blue, 
And like, I think it was the right deck to play, and I think I played it okay. But, like, you know, I did really well in Arena. I just didn't understand. Like, what the interactions and, and, and matchups right. and threats. Because like, that was your I testing process. The, yeah. You watch the highlights, you watch the top eight, and she's just, like, showing you that, like, this goes so much. This is this is so much more. Yeah. Deep. There's more to it. The, yeah, there's levels yeah, to it. Yeah, and, like, yeah, no, like, there was two specifically. One was with the, the, the Embercleave deck, the Embercleave Oko deck that no one else ever had. I think it was a good deck, but, like, it's not a good deck if 70% of the field is Oko and everyone prepared. And, like, it's a double whammy, right? It's that, like, the one matchup that you didn't focus on is several times as big as you thought it was mm -hmm. and so much harder than you thought it was at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was only one or the other to be fine. Mm -hmm. But it's both. Right. And it's it's one thing accident. if it's not common, but it's the most popular deck. So. Right, and it's not an accident. It's like you're always going to get whammied by the worst case scenario on both of these things at once yeah. when you finally show up. Unless yeah. you did your job. Right? Unless yeah. you were ready. And then yeah. you're just dead. It's like, okay, I'm dead. I can't, you know, I can still do okay, but like I'm never going to break through mm -hmm. under that circumstance. No, and you're and, there and, to, you're there to yeah. win the whole thing. So it's like, it's not, it's not going to bring you joy to be like, ah, uh, you know, you know, right. you have, you, you're there to win. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then you figure something out. And like there was a, I forget what it was called, but it was an online tournament, uh, Twitch Rivals or something, where I, um, I figured out, you know, in the wake of the Oko, Oko got, you know, Oko gets banned. And I figure out you can play four Prophetic Sphinxes in the, um, I forget exactly what the name of the card is, because, again, like, my, my memory is fake. <laughs> it's okay, I but don't I, know the card you, either. You, can, you take the cards in the Mention deck, you can put four, Sphinx, four, four Sphinxes in, mm -hmm. so that you have a much better chance of finding your deck set up properly, right, early, you know, from the start. And then I go in, and I just, you know, I, I own day one, I go 6-0, I popularize the strategy. Uh, I end up losing in the second round of day two or something because, like, you know, any given match of magic use and I just lose. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't like I was running away from one of them. And then, like, you know, before that tournament and after that tournament, I'm like number five on arena or something. Like that. The strategy, like, it's just it's rushing. But again, like that's the thing, right? Like, I, I had this one tournament where I was like slightly ahead of the game, but it turns out that, like, yeah, it was just. Real players are better than this. Mm -hmm. And you can just tell, like you watch the, even if you're not in the participating, you can watch these feature matches. You can watch people play. And it's just on a different level. Even if the deck lists look like the same, right? They're like two cards off. You're like, the deck lists are the same. It's all the same. And you just watch these matches and you're like, not the same. Right. Right. It's just not the same. It's a different game. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I think there are very much, there are, there are these top. There are these. There are these players who are capable of making the top eight. There are these players who are capable of making day two, and there are players who are like I'm capable of making it to the pro tour. But it would be extraordinarily lucky for me to make it to day two, and if I cash it all, I'm really happy. And it's the same way. Like it's like in college football or something, right? Like where you've got teams, and each team is on a different level, and they have different ambitions, right? And like for you know, if Alabama doesn't make the playoff, it's a tragedy. Right, like that's, that's they don't they don't win the SEC like their their season's bad, their season fails. But Missouri, you know, they ended up the tenth team. They went nine and two. They're going to a nice bowl game in the New Year's Six. They're thrilled, right? That was a great season. And you know, with time, you can you can get better. Sometimes you get worse, and like you you you, you try to transition. But yeah, like when I showed up to to an old school pro tour, 
it definitely felt like there's 300 people in this room. 250 of them will never win this one. Like, never, ever, ever. It was that like, divided. Not... The gulf. Okay. Yeah, approximately. I felt like there are only 50 people in this room who have, like, you know, even a 1 in 10,000 chance of this room. Who have any significant chance of this room. And then of those 50, you know, there's going to be an elite for this particular tournament. You know, also, there's like a clear number one player. His name is Sean Stapleton. Clear number two player. His name is Kai Boudet. And then like, you know, you can argue where that switched at some point. And mm. the clear number three player. His name is Bob Maher. Or, you know, whatever. Like, we're, like, you know, everyone agrees on this, this rank ordering, roughly. Right? So it's just clear. And you can say, okay, there's going to be like, of those 50, there's going to be like 10 people in this tournament who really got it. Who like prepared properly, who have a good build, know what they're doing, who have a real chance to win this tournament. Right? And they're going to be happy about me. Maybe more. And the right person's going to win this tournament, like, a third of the time. Like, it's that stark. Like, there's a number of tournaments where it's like, no, the exact right person won this tournament. And I think that's, like, like in Tokyo, I was that person. I was the one person most likely to win that tournament going in, and I won it. And I have never, in any other tournament other than perhaps Fluctuator, before or since, been that person. There's always been someone else who on reflection like, oh, that person was better prepared than this. Right? And I had that one moment when, like, I found the solution, and I was better at piloting this than my teammates. I think pretty clearly. Right? I understood it better. I put in more work. I was ready. Like, you know, I could make a case for maybe Venice where I think I had, like, the slide version where I was never losing another slide deck in my life. But, like, I just ended up one match short and, like, wasn't necessarily playing the other matches quite quite as well as I could have. And things didn't quite break right. It's possible. Uh, but, like, and again, Fluctuator. Fluctuator, the question is, was it me or was it the Kara? And that's a philosophy question. Okay. <laughs> it's one, right? it's like, just one of the two. Sure. Well, no, because the question is, like, McCarroll had... So he took the Jumble deck, which was the best version of the, the Tinker deck. And he put... So, like, he co his teammates gave it to him, and he copied them. Exactly. But then, right at deck registration, he realized, I've got a lot of teammates, and they're very good at magic. And this deck's very good. So he crossed out two sideboard cards, and he put in Meltdowns. Mm -hmm. And so he had a matchup advantage in the mirror. And also, he cheated his ass off. Throughout. This is not like a disputable question. Like he clearly cheated his ass off throughout, and he cheated me out of the semifinal that he won. Mm. And so, like, if you count cheating skill, he was the best player at that tournament, and he deserved to win it in that sense. <laughs> if you don't count cheating skill, it was either me or Patrick Chapin. Right. right? But, like, you know, like, and Chapin lost his deck. He had a um, he had a Gaius Cradle like combo deck that no one else had. It was like by all by, by all reports a monster. So like there are like kind of three people who had a legitimate like claim that they were the run who deserved to win this tournament in mm -hmm. some sense. Mm -hmm. And like, we all finished in the top sixteen, and like, it came down to these little details, and that's how it used to be, right? So often, right? And not always. Like, I don't think Lakanto was the best player at Pro Tour One, <laughs> right? Like by any means, for mm -hmm. example, right? Like, but I think that like Dave Price was arguably the best player, like for example, at the Raft Pro Tour. Like he was the he was the he was the expert at playing red decks. Yep. who piloted the red deck the best with a good version of the red deck. Yeah. And so, like, I can kind of make a claim 
Like, I can try to make a claim that I had a better version of that red deck. But I was new. I was young. I was inexperienced. You know, pretty nervous. You're going to make mistakes under, under the lights, under pressure. Yeah, you weren't quite there yet. And, yeah. And also, I, I made the mistake of drawing in round seven, which crippled my chances. Like, that's why I didn't make the top eight of that tournament. Right? My first adult pro tour, I'm at four and two. Right, I'm in this matchup in the in the in the future match area to see who makes day two, and I'm like, do I want to play tomorrow? Because at that point, if you drew, you made day two, right at four two one. Uh, but okay. if I played the match and I lost, I was out, right? And so, like, I didn't have like my teammates were telling me to draw, that it was like fine to draw, that like it was the you know reasonable math play to draw. I wanted to be back tomorrow. I wanted to compete. I wanted to see what happened. I didn't want to turn it all, rest it all on one game, one match. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I took the draw. And, you know, they told me if I went six and one the next day, I would still make the top eight, right? Like that I still had a loss to give. And this was flatly not true. Mm -hmm. I went six and one on the next day and I came in 12th. So it wasn't like it could have gone the other way, right? It was, I was, I was, I knew I was dead for the top eight, like three rounds before my teammates admitted it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a frustrating thing to have happen, right? Like, you know you're not competing for, like, 12, right? Like, mm -hmm. you might make 10. And your opponents think you might be 8. And you're like, no, I'm not going to be 8. <laughs> right? Like, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. Like, I've done the math. Like, this is just not possible. Like, I'm in the last round. Mm -hmm. And I get paired against Darwin Castle, who is playing the deck that's supposed to beat us. He's supposed to beat Red. He's, like, 7-0 against Red or something insane. And I'm sitting down at my Red deck. And it's like, I think back and I feel like it's that scene from, Stan, from um, uh, I forget the name of it, but the chess movie. And like this, you know, the, 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 the hero kid is now forced to play against like this uppity prep school, like snotty white guy. And it's like, you got to play against Jason Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. And like, he sits down and it's like, oh God, this is going to suck. And like, sits down and like, you know, what's your rating? He says 1720. He asks the Jason, what's yours? He says 2150. And so, like, by math, you're supposed to never win this match. But it turns out this guy, you know, I'm better than I think I am. And, like, I have, you know, grit and, uh, you know, school, you know, street smarts. And I, I fight him back and I win. But, mm -hmm. like, it's a story. But, um, you know, I definitely felt like that going against Darwin. Right? It's like, like, he's beaten seven red decks. He's this world-famous, you know, top player. Like, one of the top five players of all time. And I'm sitting down against him. I got to play. And he's playing for top eight. Right? He's in with a win. And I'm not. I know I'm not. But, like, it's still left the stakes. Mm -hmm. Right? And it just... And I was so nervous. Right? Like, I I ended up winning. But, like... Yeah, my, my deck was much better against the, his build than normal red decks. I had Golf mm -hmm. Bombardment against... Then the other decks. seven decks. Okay. Well, I mean, I have, I have Golf Bombardment in my deck again. He's playing Living Death. So, like, literally game two, right? Like, I've got a Golf Bombardment. I, I landed on turn two. And so, like, he's staring at his living death. He's obviously staring at his living death, right? It's not hard to read. Because, like, he's like, what else? Because, like, he's looking at his face. Mm -hmm. He's like, looking at everything. Like, obviously, <laughs> he's got a living death. Kind of gives and, it away. And, like, under normal circumstances, there was no Goblin McBarber in play, right? This game would be over. Right? He would clearly mm -hmm. just win. But what he, what he knows, if he casts it, I go, sack this, sack this, sack this, bring everything back, sack everything again. Mm -hmm. If I have any burn spell in my hand, he just dies. So mm -hmm. He can't cast it. Right, he can't actually. His deck doesn't yeah. work. You just blank his deck. Fight, yeah. Right, he's he, his deck has to fight for advantage in other ways. He can still like outlast. I mean, he still has a lot of power in his deck. He can yeah, win. yeah, yeah. 
But like suddenly, the reason he dominates, he doesn't work on turn two. Like game one, he he coerces me. I forget what the name of the coercion spell was. He he you know he looks at my hand on turn two before I have a chance to land my goblin apartment. He sees goblin apartment in game one, and you could tell like you look at his face of like, huh? Wait, they don't play that. What's that doing there? Right? Like, yeah. Who's this kid? Like, and like he takes it. Right, because he realizes he has to take it. Right. Which means I don't get to, which means I don't lose anything else. So I still, like, I get to curve out and, like, do something reasonable and I end up winning the game. But it was like, and then I just land one, on, I have two in the main, and, like, I just land one on turn two in the second game. On the flip. Yeah, yeah, I like, like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the game isn't over, but, like, it turns out, like, the fact that he's at 20 isn't that important. Right, or he's at mm-hmm. 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I had a, I didn't lose another red deck, even though I didn't prepare for the red matchup, because, like, it's another one of these things where, like, I, I use my, I'm going to see what's available in the format strategy, right? I'm going to see what's powerful. So, like, I didn't get the red deck from anyone else. I just built a red deck because I built a deck of everything to see what was good. And I, from the beginning, I had Wrathy Dragon in it, in the main. Mm-hmm. So I played four Wrathy Dragons in the main. And because of that, I had 24 lands in my deck. So I'm playing 24 lands instead of, like, 20, right? And I'm playing four Wrathy Dragons. So both, I have this 5-5... Five, five, Flyer for four mana. It's really hard for the red decks to actually kill. Mm-hmm. And also, my curse scrolls work. Like yeah. on a level that other people's curse scrolls don't work. Like, yeah. I can actually use them. And like, sometimes I'll just have to drag it in my hand and just like use curse scroll, curse scrolls. Right. Like, More effective curse but, scrolls. Like, right. Like you know, they have giant strength, so they can land turn two giant strength and then attack with a four three or whatever. And that's like their secret weapon that makes their deck like really powerful. And I never had giant strength. I never thought it was good because like it's different principles. Like, you don't put giant things on a creature, what if I kill it? Bad. <laughs> like, like, that's... Yeah. Like, I mean, it's never occurred to me. I never, never thought I needed it either. But, like, I've got all these other things that are going on, right? Like, mm-hmm. that are making me like, a more powerful deck. And they're trying to, like, they have this extra trick, and they just have general, like, red deck energy, right? Like, mm-hmm. big, red, big, red, big red deck energy. And so, like, if I make the top eight, you know, and, and often they have these weird cards. They have, like, this these weird artifacts that, like, punish you for having a small hand or whatever, like, like, I had any of that weird stuff, right? I'm just going, like, big, right? And I have, like, a different sideboard than everybody else. I have Helms of Possession and, like, or whatever they call the, yeah, the, the, the take control things. And, like, I have some other weird, like, I'm playing against... Oh, the Helm like, of Obedience? No, Helm something... No, no, Helm of Possession. The Helm of Obedience was the old one. That was in my first uh, okay. quali- deck I qualified with, actually. Oh, okay, okay. I don't sideboard. know the newer one. Uh, yeah. Other stories, right? I broke that format by accident, but, like, never played the Pro Tour. But, um... So it's like, I've got everything that follows from 24 lands, right? Like, I am able to play real cards and real magic, and they can't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so, like, I've got this completely different deck. And, like, I have three. So, like, here's how different the deck was. I had three general thoughts on purpose. Right? Like, Not I was four, like, three. No, because, like, I need one drops, right? I need one drops to make this deck work. But, like, this thing is such a liability. In a normal game of magic, right? It just like it dies and does damage to you, mm-hmm. and it's like this is terrible. And what if I place another red? And I, and I, I might place another red deck, and then they just burn it. And I take damage, right? You know, whatever. It's bad. They block it. And I take damage. It's bad. And so, like, I had four conscripts, four fanatics, and three jackal pups in the one slot. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. this is actually the worst of the three one drops. I have so many creatures in it. Like, yeah. the conscripts get attacked most of the time anyway, and. Like, everything was just so bizarre 
but <laughs> you know, it's just like, hey, it but works. Like, yeah, but like, yeah, with that, I just even with my nervousness, I finished it. It felt like justice, right? This is also before draft, right? Often, like where we just you you would draft separately. You'd have this draft pro tour, and then you'd have the constructed pro tour separately. Mm. And so, yeah, I feel like you look at those tournaments, like it's just justice. So often that the right person won. Like, how do you think Kaimudi won like three in a row? Right? Like, so you think well, it was good, uh, it was predetermined or it was justice in your words? Right, it was yeah. justice. It was, it, I mean, not, not that like he was favored to win three in a row, but that like being the best player gave him this like double digit chance to win each of them. Mm-hmm. Right, like this, like real, real chance, being in the best position, and like he capitalized, right? Like, but and I was never that good, so that didn't happen. But. <laughs> I definitely look back and like, you know, I, I made top eight when I deserved it, I think. And I didn't make top eight when I didn't deserve it. Remarkably often. I mean, obviously the top 16s where you're one off, like often like, you know, you were one of the 16 people who were going to be in the top 16 and you happened to be one short. But, and when you're in the top eight, like obviously you could have been in the top 16 instead, but you, your luck went well. And all so like, you don't that, want to read too much into that, that's a, that's a good way to think about it right because i was going to ask you about this like so you think in the aggregate like you got exactly what you deserved like you 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 won where you thought you deserved to win you lost where you is that even a term like you deserve to lose or deserve to not yes, win I, and absolutely. you got exactly what you what you expected kind of thing and you're at peace with I, that I, I think i'm very at peace with it I, I think that you know i got roughly the total returns that my career deserved my that my effort and skill deserved except for the luck that i was able to play right i think this is incredibly fortunate yeah like if you don't continuously put up results and stay on the gravy train right you're done that's Mm -hmm. the end of your career Mm -hmm. right if you don't get a start you don't get if i don't get my early you know my early lucky breakthrough Mm -hmm. to get like a bunch of slots that I then am able to parlay into staying on, mm-hmm. then who knows if I ever managed to do that. That's true. Right, yeah. in the same way. Yeah. And I was able to win qualifiers when I needed to, and it wasn't a given. Mm-hmm. There were times I had to win qualifiers. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I managed to, each time I managed to find a way, including one time I showed up to a qualifier, I showed up to neutral ground, just on a normal Saturday, looking to play like and other non-magic games okay. that I usually do on a Saturday. Yeah. Only to find there was a limited Pro Tour qualifier happening that day that I did not realize was happening. And it was mm-hmm. the last qualifier, and I was not going to be in. And they were already registering. And I came in, and I was a little bit late. And I was like, oh, I guess this is what I'm doing today. Yeah. And I came in. I registered and I won. And I was <laughs> I don't At least you didn't have to one, bring a deck; like, you just had to register. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if it hadn't been limited, and I hadn't just randomly walked in, right? Right. At that, moment, I'm not in that tournament. Like you're, and I'm not you're in like, that tournament. Five, you you go through that door ten mm-hmm. minutes later. You don't. There's no. There's no tournament yeah. for you no, to I play. I think in, I had right? like maybe five minutes of cushion to like be able to. I would have just taken a first round loss if I had to. Like I'm going to play, right? But like I was able to play in round yeah. one. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and it turns out, like, if I miss that tournament, or if I miss any Pro Tour, for any reason, right, it puts your entire career in danger. Because now, like, it's so much harder to get back on the train. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like it, it's it's really really important to string things together. And so I think mm-hmm. I was incredibly fortunate that my distribution like allowed that. And I was incredibly fortunate my, my my situation in life allowed me obviously to to have the privilege of devoting this time, preparing, doing all these things. And like that stuff I got incredibly lucky. But I think mm-hmm. I think given what I walked into these tournaments with, right, individually, collectively, yeah, I think one win, you know, four top eights, you know, about as many top sixteens feels right. You know, and like the much close calls where I feel like, you know, I could have legitimately been the winner or the top eight. Mm-hmm. But also, like, in the time I did it, you know, but like, you're supposed to have a bunch of close calls to get, you get, you never win a pro tour without getting super lucky, right? Like, right. like right. I mean, I think like, I'm talking about, like, you know, you might have a 30% chance to win if you're the best player in the room. You still gotta lose 70% of the time at some point, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're not gonna mm-hmm. make it through. Uh, and I think nowadays it's much lower, right? I think nowadays you have a much broader set of people who are capable of winning. And a much lower gap between like first and tenth as you walk into it. And that's also how the games develop, right? Just in terms of the cards and the the way decks are constructed. Like it's not just information and testing, right? It's 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 more than that. It's like the fundamental game itself has changed. Would you? Yeah, would you're, you not you're not going to have the same kind of edge, right? You're not going to figure something out the way we used to, where like you figure out a way to you figure out a different deck or a different way to play that deck or a different way to make something work for you in a way that, like, you used to be able to do, right? Mm-hmm. You can have a huge edge on the field, right? Like, like at the Fluctuator Pro Tour, and, 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 and the, the Pro Tour, you know, Academy Block Pro Tour, I legitimately think that against the majority of the field, I was, you know, like 80-plus percent to win the match, right? I was just like, I am going to be. It's it's that because, skewed because of the because because yeah your deck just takes an extra turn or more to beat mine. You don't have any important disruption in your deck that's relevant to my interests. If you are playing green, I bring in four hibernations after being favored in game one, and your like your artifact destruction spells don't really matter that much because I can play around like you killing anything relevant, and like if you told back to do that, then you're slowing yourself down. It doesn't really help. And if you're playing another artifact, another artifact deck, and you've got a cannon these as well, I have Lingering Mirage. So even if you draw your economy and you play your economy first, a lot of the time, like turn three is, you know, turn four is going to be like tap two, Mirage, play economy with, right? Like on the spot. And like often they'll have to do things like play economy on turn one and say go. Right? Because like they know I can do it if they don't. Right, and they have to therefore play protectionally, and I don't play that way because I have Mirage. And so, like, like when I'm putting as Mark right in the mirror matchup, it felt like yeah, I'm like 75 percent of this match because like my deck is like half a turn faster than his because he's gonna hit, he's gonna like hit his eight basic lands and his clouds of Gex and his other cards that like are kind of whammies when you're trying to fluctuate through your deck. So often he'll often just need an extra card draw that I won't need, right, or an extra untap that I, he won't get. And so he'll lose a turn. And I have Mirage. So between these two things, like, I have a huge adventure. Right? And these days, like, I can't remember the last time that I thought, like, even the relatively lopsided matchups were that bad. Right? Because, like, also, like, look at how the cards work, right? 
back in the day, the cards were simple, right? The card was like, draw some cards, or do some damage, or one thing. Be a guy. And now the card is like, choose, you know, like, like you know, like, choose two of, like, you know, you discard, you pick a card and discard, or bring a card back, or kill an artifact. Like, like, everything is modal. Everything is, like, yeah. designed for best of one play and commander to be interesting, always be useful. Right, so right. like everything has all these other purposes. So every deck has like these ways of doing interacting in all these different axes, and mm. doing all these interesting things. And like everything, nothing is ever like, oh, you're playing a removal spell. I didn't play any creatures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have a problem. It's right? less like, chess that matchy, if that's even a term these days. Like, and there's just more haymakers. Like, I'm just thinking of recent cards. Like, yeah. uh, what's the card? Expressive iteration, or um, uh, yeah. what's that saga sure. that that that? Uh, oh, Fable the Mirror Breaker, where it's just like it. Right. Thing, it does like five these, things. Yeah. Everyone's doing all their cards do five things. They're got all the incremental advantage, and also they've got so many ways to just like haymaker you out on turn four or five. Right. right. I just like. The game can be over so quick. Yeah. Just snowball haymaker magic. Like, initial yeah. draws matter so much. Who's on the play matters mm -hmm. so much. Like how you're like if you don't have time to like choose which cards to use to interact with their cards, to try and sculpt the situation, to try and form a plan, then like often a player will make in the modern game like very few decisions. Right? And they can be important decisions, and it's still the better players have a big edge. But it's not the same. Yeah, and between that and the public study of things and public, it's public less decisions overall, out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, like like back in the day, if you had told me, okay, the best player at this constructed only pro tour, whoever they are, you're gonna play against the tenth best player, right? In a match, one match, best three out of five top eight situation, let's say. I would say number one has at least a two to one advantage, probably. Like just side on scene, mm. and now it's like fifty three. It was that different. Okay. I would, I'd probably say that. I know they're like 55% tops, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe 53. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, it's an edge, but like, it's just not that large. And similarly, like if you, if you find the right deck, right? Like you look at these matchup graphs and they used to have like a lot more eighties and seventies on them. And now they have a lot of 55s, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. I was like, well, you know, if you change three cards, and you like slowly decide to sculpt your thing. Suddenly everything's different. And like in mm -hmm. modern, that's like sideboard cards matter a ton, but like, a lot of times it's just these cards all do a lot of different things and like all these decks are doing reasonable things and mm -hmm. you never know what's going to happen. And I miss, like, like but that's like my design, right? Because what Wizards wants the match to be interesting. Mm -hmm. They want it to be in doubt. You don't want that thing of like, well, I play two mountains and you play two forests. So we both know who's going to win. <laughs> right. And different formats, different answer of which of us is going to win here. But like, you don't want it to be like, you know, oh, well, obviously, you know, it's, it's pre-modern, so, like, the Goblins are going to be the Elves, right? Like, you want it to be, like, well, it depends on exactly what cards the Elves can make. Yeah. Right? Like, they actually have good ways to create extra blockers here, or do they skimp on that? Like, how does that influence? Mm -hmm. And what sideboard cards do they play? It's like, and, and then not have it just be, oh, I brought in all the chills, and I stuck a turn two chill, and now they all have Right? <laughs> like, is that fun? I found it fun. But what? Fun. And I yeah. That. yeah 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 to each their own um i also want to shift topics a little bit like because there's something that I'm, i really want to ask you um which is sure. about like 
your magic writing, like we, we kind of started the interview talking about your, your current writing with Substack and AI and things like that. But yeah. I think you're also just very foundational in terms of like the magic writing. And um, as I understand it, you're one of the first to popularize the set review. Is that right? Like an article format? And you, you did like some things there. I, I, I don't know, like, is it is it difficult yeah, to... I, I to talk about yourself that way or just just like no, were you innovated no, no, no. pioneered I, writing I think, yeah. I think they existed already but i i sort of solidified right yeah. like the the format and then i i made it something more valuable i think more concrete like like i took it seriously and i like made it something that like also i it became a template that other people could could draw from Mm-hmm. But I got people were doing set reviews before I did, right? It wasn't, I didn't come up with the idea. I, I was copying someone. I was copying other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was refined by you. Yes. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think I, over time, like I, I became like the big set reviewer in some sense. And, mm-hmm. and part of it is iteration, just doing it over and over again, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. Right. Yeah. You know, part of it, I mean, this, theor- this theoretic thing, right? Being able to think about like what these cards might be able to do. And the looking for raw power thing, right? I think that like the big mistake that a lot of set reviewers still make, right? Uh, are people who look at new cards is they ask, "What deck does this go into? Mm. What matchup does this win?" Mm-hmm. Right, like this very narrow question. pre-existing, yeah, yeah. Right, and they're they're stuck in the old paradigm. And AI is interestingly very similar to this, where like people see sure there's a, a new model. development, yeah, and they're like, "Whose job are we going to be in danger?" Right. Mm-hmm. What task are we going to automate with this yeah. particular ability, right? Like, like where you know, what kind of deep fake is someone going to make about this? Like, they ask mm-hmm. a very narrow, specific application question, mm-hmm. and like that's not a bad question to be asked. You want to know the answer to that question, mm-hmm. but but there's what more. you really want to ask is, what does this tell me about what this thing is going to be able to do next year, in five years? Mm-hmm. What paths does this lead down? You know, what mm-hmm. skills can I develop? What, how, why is it exciting in a much more Mm-hmm. Sense. Mm-hmm. And so with, with new cards, it's the same thing. It, it's what does this card do that that's new, that's different? Mm-hmm. Like, is it is it gener- generic, generally powerful, or not generally not very powerful? Mm-hmm. And think much less about exactly where it's going to go because the game changes, mm-hmm. right? There's another set after, the new set after this one, the rotation coming. You know, you don't know what else is going to come up. What new decks and strategies are going to arise? Let's think in general about what's good in general. And like, obviously keep in mind like what's good right now and what's out there, but like, don't get narrowly focused on old magic and new magic always look the same mm-hmm. because that's, that's not going to, you're going to find the most interesting things. That way. Right? I think it's that's where, the... I think that's where you and uh, Chapin have done very well. Like I remember reading, you know, I'm sure you've done the same similar articles as well, right? Like, you know, when a new set comes out, Shapin would just brew like decks just off the new cards. Like, yeah, it would just be thought I mean, experiments. Yeah, yeah that's right. maybe I, love, I think it's following what that. you're doing kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Because, like, he's just like concretely, here's what you can do. And that's in fact how I got my start. So, I'm on this team called the Legion, which is basically just a mailing list started by Alex Schwartzman and mm-hmm. Rebel Levy. And it's basically just a bunch of, you know, Americans and Frenchmen and like some other people. And we're just like, I'm in college and we exchanged some emails on a, on a list or whatever. And there's like 10 people on the mailing list. 
And because it's not like I'm not on the Pro Tour, I'm not like doing anything special, I don't care to like scrutinize some of the list. And unknown to me, one of these 10 people is Frank Casamata. Mm. Someone added Frank. Okay. Right? He runs the dojo. Right. So for those who don't know, because it's, it's been a while. So I write a post called Degeneracy for the mailing list, in which I post uh, two decks. I say, like, okay, so a lot of these cards in this latest set, the set with Mulch, I forget exactly which one it is, um, are going to enable us to do some, like, kind of degenerate, like, strategies that do very powerful, narrow things. And the game's going to become much more about that, I think, like, in the coming months. Mm-hmm. And so I give an example of, like, the first um, Scroll Rack Mulch deck is one of them, before yeah. this was a thing, because the card had just been announced. And I think the other deck was a Pox deck or something? But I forget exactly what it was, but like something of like going hard on a very narrow strategy. Narrow axis, like, sure. A very narrow axis that can in fact then double back to to impact the game in the races. And it was like written very quickly in one of the decks is fifty eight cards. I think someone pointed out later, not that it matters, right? You can just it's in theoretical deck you can have two more. Sure. And then, you know, Frank responds to this and says, Can I post this? Dojo. I'm like, okay, right? I don't care. Like, it's not. I'm not protecting anything, right? Like, if you want to, go ahead. But I post it, and then the feedback is positive, and people are like, "Ooh, that's really cool. Those are some, you know, those decks have some good ideas in them. I'm glad you shared this with us." And like, as a, like a 19 year old college student, right? That's really exciting. And like, this contrasts with, you know, at the time, you know, I'm taking logic and rhetoric. In, in, in the required course in college, I'm getting C's. We have C pluses and like maybe B minuses when I get, you know, at the end of the term. They don't think I know how to write. Right? They think I suck at writing. But, you know, that's a very different kind of writing and I didn't have any practice. So like, based on this encouragement, I start posting stuff to the dojo and then I get to practice, right? The only way to get better at writing is to write. Like, the only way you get good at writing is you just write forever and ever and ever. And, if I hadn't written about magic for 10 years, that's like multiple articles a week for a decade, and then written more about, you know, rationality and then about COVID and other things about gaming, I wouldn't be able to do what I do now if I am. It, it like requires this deep, deep experience. Just practice, practice, practice. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. There's no substitute. There's no substitute. And so, yeah, we looked at the set review. It was just, this is an opportunity to be the first. This is what's super exciting about it, right? You get to be first. Nobody else has said what they think about this card. And you get to be original. You get a completely blank canvas. Blank canvas, yeah. Blank canvas. You get to say what you think. You speculate. And, like, you find out what, where, where you're right, where you're wrong. You know, like, how are you thinking about it? Explain your thinking. And it, it helps you. It forces you to go through the list and think about every card and evaluate every card. And think about what you could build. So it, this has been a signature of what I'm trying to do with my writing forever, especially in magic. It's like explain your thinking, not just to the other person, but to yourself. Understand what you're doing. Cause yourself to think well about the thing where you wouldn't have otherwise. And then try to teach that and have that conversation with other people as well. And hope they find it useful. Right. And the set reviews were the, you know, kind of the ultimate version of this. And they were really popular too, right? Once I started doing them, 
right? Like after Urza Saga, right? Everyone was like, wow, that was amazing. Uh, relatively speaking, obviously. Yeah, but like, a lot of it was also just like with low standards. Like back in the day, right? Like there was no professionalism, right? They weren't professional magic writers. Like no one was being paid, basically. Yeah. There was only one website. It was all just voluntary. And like, there's just a bunch of writing people who don't know how to write, right? And you don't know how to build. And also no one was good at building decks either, right? Or explaining strategy or understanding what they were doing. And they weren't good at magic. Right, everyone sucks, right? Myself included. So right. everyone's bad at everything about this, including me. And so, like, I put something out there, and I think, like, you know, half an I think an effort. And like, even that, like, kind of stands out, right? Like, the same way, yeah. like, you if back you're in the day, decent, you just you're write, standing out already yeah. at that time. Yeah, back in the day, you write a tournament report, or you're just like, I'm going to tell a story, like a good storyteller, that I went to this tournament, and here's what happened that day, and it was a fun day. And I learned some things and I had some interesting situations pop up and you do a halfway decent job of it and everyone loved it. Right? Because that's, like, that's all you can hope for at that point. Yeah. Right? And so you innovate to this new idea of this set review complete with actual lists of actual, like, you can shuffle this up and see how it plays and then look from there. Right? To embody the ideas. And, like, you thought this through and, like, comments on every card and, like, rankings and speculations and, like, accountability. And it's a really exciting thing. And then that became like my signature thing in the writing going forward. And yeah, a lot of what I've done is, has been very path dependent and very contingent and very much like I sort of step into it. Right? I didn't mm -hmm. plan the set review guy mm -hmm. thing. Right? It just sort of happened. Yeah. And just like, decided to do it. it. Yeah. And yeah, that's I amazing. To do things. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just, it's just like. <laughs> And I, I mean, because I started playing Magic in the '90s as well, not not tournaments, but just kitchen table with my brother. So it's like, I think it's often not understood by people who are more recent to Magic, like just how innovative literally everything was. Like you know, just Magic on yeah. the internet, like writing, seeing a tournament report for the first time, seeing like reports on new cards for the first time like even when price guides first came out like blew my mind as a kid like like there's just all <laughs> yeah. this stuff out there like people were actually writing about this and i would like find yeah, out about ccgs yeah. from magazines and all this stuff you, God, you had to like study card values you had, you to, had trade to be there yeah all the time like or else you would just take, lose so much value yeah you get fleeced right it would just be you get fleeced, so <laughs> yeah you get fleeced or you wouldn't have the cards you wanted and like yeah, and card then, availability, like, like card is a real thing. It mattered, and, and and you you didn't know what was out there. You didn't know what decks were good. You didn't know what people would be playing. Yeah, like, it was you wild. were innovating. Not yeah. just me, but like everyone, because right. you didn't have a choice, right? Like you you didn't. There was nothing to copy. Everybody was in the dark, like trying to figure out where's the light. Like where am I going to? You know, right? And just, just move around and try to try to do something. Yeah, and like it was so much. I loved it. It was so much better that way. Oh right? sure. Like, you know, you, you played against a person. And, like, it was really Garfield's original vision, right? You, you you felt like you were playing against that person. Yes. Right? There was a distinct identity like, there. Yeah. She had a deck that was her. Mm -hmm. He had a deck that is. Mm -hmm. That embodied their identity, their mm -hmm. philosophy. Like, what they were, like, a specific kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Right? And, like, every match felt different. Every mm -hmm. game felt different. Mm -hmm. And that stopped being true. After and even the way people carry themselves and like tap their cards or arrange cards, like it was, it was not homogeneous or homogenous at that time. Like it was just, it was just a very distinctive way that people 
like fuse themselves with magic at that time it's hard to explain mm-hmm. now because it's gotten so um uh commoditized i think yeah we have you know arena and moto so like we have like this example set and then we have the feature matches to watch that everybody knows like how you're supposed to carry yourself and what it's supposed to look like and, yeah and i i I do appreciate that in some ways because it means that like there aren't these weird mind games, but like I also kind of liked the mind games, right? So, <laughs> so like to be clear, like it wasn't all peaches and cream, right? Like there was well, sure, yeah, again, it was, like, there was some rough stuff. Was, like, yeah. Having card availability issues was a, definitely a problem. Yeah. Like cheating was rampant. Theft. There was a lot of crazy I mean, that, stuff. Yeah, theft and cheating, in particular, yeah. were like really. Bad. I lost my collection multiple times. Mm-hmm. Like as in stolen, including out of my locker. Just, just phone. stolen. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I lost power. Yeah. I had power, and I don't anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I didn't sell it. It mm-hmm. got taken away, mm-hmm. and that sucks so bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you just, you. I, I didn't have the money. Yeah, there was like, literal theft, and of course there's theft via cheating as well, and all these opportunistic yeah, I mean, there's, there's, cheats and, and all this stuff. And these things still happen, don't get me wrong. There's still, like, occasional opportunistic cheats, there's still, like, a few people who cheat on purpose deliberately, there's still theft. Mm-hmm. But we're talking different orders of magnitude here. We're talking about, like, right. a factor of 10 or 100. It's just, yeah, back in the day, yeah. just, like, you, you, like, you sat down to a pro tour, right? And you had a list of players that you knew were savage cheaters. Right, you knew that like okay, Michael Long is at this tournament, Chris Benefell is at this tournament, yeah. right? Ryan Fuller is at this tournament, and I can freaking name them now, right? Like, mm-hmm. and when you sat down against those players, like even if they didn't cheat, they had a huge advantage because you had to be because vigilant. Half of your brain, yeah, was on how do I stop this person from cheating me or yeah. catch them if they fast me. one, yeah. And they could just choose to put one hundred percent of their brain power behind winning the game normally if they right. wanted to. Right. They didn't Just the threat ever. of the cheat was enough. Yeah. Right. The threat is so much strong. The threat is often strong. I mean, back then the execution was really good. Like it wasn't just cheat. It was like also rules lawyering, and mm-hmm. tricking, mm-hmm. and manipulating, and like the intent wins revolution. So good. Right. Yeah. Like there's this period where like you would put a counter on your worldling dervish, and Tommy Hovey would just untap all his cards. Yeah. Right. Because like. By definition, if you're putting the counter on it, it means you proceeded to your end step. This means you are done. Ah, okay, yeah. It was just fast-forwarding. Right, to, he's not short-cutting, like, it's going to get a counter, so I'm going to put the counter on it, and then cast my... You would put the counter on it and start tapping mana to cast the spell, and he would just immediately, before you could do that, untap his lands and draw a card. Right. Because you're done. Right. Right? Like, and that's not cheating. Right? That's legal. Uh-huh. But it's, like, scummy as hell from today's perspective. Right, but back sure. then it was just then it was just okay. He's one of the half of players who would do this if it occurred to them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like unusual even, mm-hmm. right? But like no, when you watched your opponent shuffle their deck, you were like, "Is he stacking it?" And mm-hmm. a lot of the time, like there was like a third of people who it's like almost like at one point like like a third of people who aren't who are legitimately shuffling their deck, a third of people who are actively cheating and trying to stack their deck. And a third of people who think that mana weaving isn't stacking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right? Who, like, I remember that. Who legitimately think this is just how magic is played. Right. I remember Jason Gordon, one of the most famous cheaters of all time, ended up on my team for like a random Saturday, like everyone plays a different format tournament. And like sometimes you just have to like improvise teams because like, you know, there's only so many players in the room. Sure. Just, like, make something happen. Yeah. So I end up on Gordon's team and I end up on type one. 
I'm playing Vintage. And he hands me this deck. So, like, I have to shuffle it carefully. It's not my cards. And it's got my Moxes and the Lotus in it. Yeah, and all that. yeah. But, like, he's like, okay. Here's how you shuffle the deck. And involves first sorting the deck. Oh, he's giving right? a tutorial. By, okay. And he's like, and he says, <laughs> if you don't shuffle the deck this way, it won't work. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it's supposed to work. Here's the tutorial. Right. Yeah. It was built. It has this many mana sources. Like it's like a 25 right. mana. Make sure you can get code. those mana sources. Yeah. <laughs> it is assuming that the mana will be distributed. Will be stacked very well. Like oh. it's not trying to like exact. This is not trying to like your exact entire entire post, mm. right? It's not like that. That's not. Mm. That, 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 they don't cheat that much. That, that's just know? how some people thought about it at the time, right? Yeah, I mean, In terms I mean of... some people would, but like very yeah. few people would. Mostly, it's just you're trying to get a good distribution, and you're like you're mm -hmm. trying to ensure it way too often. Mm -hmm. And so you're playing all these different games, right, against people who are various different degrees of cheating. And when you're playing against someone you don't know and trust, you're like, I don't know if this person's cheating. But they legitimately might be cheating a little bit or a lot. And yeah, it's really hard to catch to people. You have to assume they could be doing it, right? You have to. And that's, yeah, and like, it's like not it's half the brain power of the entire tournament. Yeah. Like 25% of your brain power at a major tournament back then was like, don't get cheated. And like, that's not fun. Right, the rest of you, like you're having fun with the match, with the mm -hmm. tournament decision, but like there's this extra just level of just terrible stress, of like, you know, a significant portion of your opponents are cheating, and even if they're not cheating, they're often like doing things they think are okay that kind of aren't, and also they're stalling. There's tons of stalling. Oh right? yeah. Right, like there's tons of stalling. Slow play and stalling. Yeah, because like players don't have the same philosophy, even the players who are like mean legitimately well, don't have the same philosophical approach of it is my duty to make sure this match finishes, unless they are playing way slower than I am and it's their fault, which is basically how I approached it, right? right. And then I will try to hurry them up and I'll call a judge and so on. But like, right. they just like a lot of players who are like, you know, you like you play against Daniel Clegg, you play against, you know, Daniel David Humphreys. Like David Humphreys is the most honorable person I've ever met. Right, in terms of like, I can trust his work. Very methodical and thinks through everything. But he's gonna take forever. Yeah. Right. Because he's like, he's got. I'm gonna find the right play. But he's not cheating. He's not stalling. Mm -hmm. He's not doing this on purpose to get advantage mm -hmm. from the clock. Mm -hmm. He's just gonna make the right play. Sure. He's not reading Jace the Mind Sculptor three times like his own Jace. Right. Yeah. Like if he had five, if the match was five hours long, he's doing. He would win every match. He would, I mean, he'd do right. very well. He's a very good magic player. Still is probably at R&D, right? He's in R&D now. And like, it's a great place for him. Mm -hmm. But like, literally, you know, we'd be on the same team. We're playing Apprentice, right? And I'm literally watching television, right? I got like the Apprentice window open, right? And I make a play. I like, go watch television for a few minutes. Figure whatever it is. Until he makes a play. And then I come back, I make another play. It's like I'm playing one of these simultaneous exhibitions, right? Where this guy will be like in the center playing white and like 40 different boards. And like, he'll make a move. The opponent will make a move. He'll make a move five seconds later, go to the next board. And like, comes around every 10 minutes, right? And it's like that with, 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 with like testing for the Pro Tour. Except it's like, he's only playing one game. And I'm only playing one game. It's just like, I'm not going to sit here. I've thought about this game as much as I can. Like, like for a test game, like there's just nothing more for me to think about, right? And, like, we're playing about as well. I think he's playing about as well as I am in these test games. It's just he's taking 10 times as long, <laughs> right? 
because he's just that methodical. And we, I played so many more games than he does that I, like, like it's like, the reason why it takes him 10 times as long to get to the right decision is because it takes him 10 times as long to get to the right decision, he's played 10% as many games as I have. That right? also or twenty percent. So yeah. like he hasn't just gotten the reps in. So he hasn't learned as much as I have in the same amount of time. Which is like oh what are you gonna do? Right? Like it's okay, you can do it. It's just hilarious. But like so you've got all these different considerations to worry about that distract you from the core thing you're doing, which you love. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was this golden age, right, in some sense, where like we had intent wins on the cards. The cheaters had mostly been defeated by, like, Bakula and Dead Guy and, like, the Rising Coalition of We're Not Tolerating This Anymore and Wizards, like, not putting up with that anymore. And so we, we have, the cheating was, like, not gone, but it was, like, much lower. And, like, stalling was much reduced. And so it's basically like, okay, there's a handful of people you have to watch out for. But mostly you're okay. Right. And the card, and, and then, like, we still had a lot of the old school, like, magic of discovery and like things being in flux and like it was a really great time and it was legitimately got like things did get better for a while right like in terms of like my experience because of that mm-hmm. and also just i made friends right it's like early on i'm this like really awkward kid who doesn't know how to interact even with other magic players properly and also i didn't have any respect so like it was a socially really awkward place to be right and then after a few years like i earned their respect and I've learned how to just, like, be a friend to someone. And, like, I've met these people. And, like, now the Pro Tour is really fun. Right? It, it's a completely different process. Like, right. on so many different levels. You, you grew up with and magic. Then after, yeah. yeah. Right. And, yeah, no, I mean, I, I learned, like, people say, like, you have to go to school to get your socialization or else what will happen to you. And it's just, like, no. They taught me all the wrong lessons. They taught me anything at all. And then I learned this at neutral ground. And I learned this on the Pro Tour. Like, I learned this amongst people who, like, actively were good people who we came together for a common enterprise and we, you know, had reasons to interact well and we had fun together and we learned together. And, like, that's how I learned to be a, yeah, a social real person. Was Not there fun. one particular person that you could name that had the most impact on you as a as a magic player, would it be a Scott Johns or a Sam Black or would it be somebody else? I think it'd be Scott. I mean, I think that like, you know, Sam Black was like the most important person in magic for me for several years, certainly. And he was like an amazing teammate, but like, I was kind of already me by that point. Like, you were I just, fully like, you formed. Don't sculpt someone yeah. at that point. Yeah. I don't think, you don't need to sculpt someone at that point, right? It's not the same. Yeah, I would say Scott Johns, um, you know, maybe second price Justin Gary. Um, yeah, these are, you know, again, like, so these players are, you know, they, they don't have, you know, other people would tell different stories about them, maybe, right? Like, you know, it's not all positive and great. But that's okay. I'm just asking through your lens. Yeah. But, but I think from my lens, like, they always treated me great. They always were great friends. You know, they understood, like, they helped me grow as a person. They helped, you know, not just in magic. You know, we spent endless, endless hours on Apprentice testing against each other, trying different things, trying to figure things out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then, like, I would say Seth Burn as well. So, like, he was okay. never one of the top pros, right? But he, he was really good. And, you know, he was just my best friend for so long and helped me in so many ways. And, like, 
You know, assembly doesn't count because he like doesn't count in the magic sense. He just counts as in a person sense, mm-hmm. right? But like, he's an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, and, uh, what, what would you want yeah. people to remember you as in the magic world? That's a good question. I, I think I want them to remember me as you know this explorer, this innovator, this guy who just like built a lot of cool stuff and tried a lot of cool stuff and you know shared it with the world as much as possible more than anything. And you know, I I enjoyed success at the competitive level and and as you know also as competitor as you know, a teammate, friends, and you know like part of the community and. You know, but mainly, yeah, like to me, it's like the act of, you know, this is a new problem, new world to explore. And I like just a person who loves exploring. That's, that would be my core answer, I think. Awesome. Well, Zvi, it was uh, amazing getting the chance to just chat with you today. I mean, it's, um, again, I have to say, it was really an honor to like revisit some of your your stories and thought process around uh, how you see the game and your relationship with the game. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, too. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Humans of Magic. You've made it to the end. Thanks so much. You're awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there are two ways to do so. The first way is the most powerful. Tell a friend. Tell them to check out Humans of Magic. I'd love it if you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you next time.